we have near 8,000 cases about actually war crimes, more than 3,000 cases which are connected to war crimes. Ukraine's prosecutor general is determined to hold Russia accountable for committing atrocities. It's Tuesday, April 26th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, how Ukrainians are gathering evidence against Russia and the toll that evidence is taking on those reviewing it. Also ahead this hour, what Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter means for free speech. And the rusty patched bumblebee is endangered and losing some of its last habitat in Illinois Prairie. A multi-million dollar airport expansion is stalled because of a last minute sighting of the bees. It's 401, now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. A baby aspirin a day to help guard against heart attacks and stroke is now getting some pushback from an influential physician group. The United States Preventive Services Task Force came out with a new assessment today. It no longer recommends that people 60 and older initiate a daily aspirin routine. It concludes with moderate certainty that initiating aspirin for the primary prevention of cardiovascular disease has no net benefit, and it could actually cause harm. The group also says a daily aspirin might have a little more benefit for people in the 40 to 59 age bracket who have a 10% or greater 10-year CVD risk, but it says the net benefit is small. People in this age group should consult with their doctor before initiating treatment. Most people in the United States, including most children, have now been infected with the coronavirus. That, according to new data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Here's NPR's Rob Stein. The CDC says so many people caught Omicron over the winter that almost 60% of everyone in the United States now has antibodies to the virus in their blood. That number is even higher for children. Almost 75% of children ages 11 and younger have antibodies to the virus. The CDC says that means many people have at least some immunity to the virus. But CDC officials stress that people should still get vaccinated because vaccination provides the the strongest, broadest protection against getting seriously ill. Rob Stein, NPR News. Vice President Kamala Harris has tested positive for the coronavirus. Here's NPR's Scott Detrow. The White House says Harris does not have any symptoms of COVID yet. She has been vaccinated and also received two booster shots. Harris regularly meets with President Biden in person, but she had spent the last week traveling in California and only returned to Washington, D.C. Monday night, so they had not met in person lately. Harris is going to work remotely and stay away from the White House until she tests negative. NPR Scott Detrow. Officials in Transnistria, a Russian-occupied self-proclaimed republic, says they've traced recent attacks to Ukraine. Here's NPR's Frank Langfitt. Transnistria, which is part of the Eastern European country of Moldova, says Ukrainian militants may be behind a series of attacks over the past two days, according to Russian state media. They include explosions that knocked down two radio towers and a rocket-propelled grenade assault on Transnistria's Ministry of State Security. Transnistria is home to about 1,500 Russian troops and at least 8,000 Transnistrian troops. Recent attacks as false flag operations staged by Russia's intelligence agency, the FSB. The purpose, they say, is to spark panic and provide a potential pretext for mobilizing Russian troops in Transnistria to attack Ukraine and create yet another front in the war here. 
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Harvard University will spend $100 million to try to atone for the ways it has benefited from slavery and perpetuated racial inequality. Today, the school released a long-awaited report found the school's early faculty, staff, and leaders enslaved more than 70 people and that past scholars promoted racial inequality. Harvard's president says in response the school will take several actions. They include expanding education in underserved areas and building stronger ties to historically black colleges and universities. The Greater Boston Chamber of Commerce wants the state's highest court to clarify or keep a so-called millionaire's tax proposal off the November ballot. It has filed a friend of the court brief in a lawsuit on the constitutional amendment that would increase taxes on people who earn more than $1 million a year. Chamber President Jim Rooney says the state constitution gives only the legislature the power to impose taxes. It's not the vehicle through which the rates should be set. And there's no precedent for that being done in Massachusetts to set a specific tax levy on a specific group of filers. So we think it's the wrong vehicle. The lawsuit says at the least the court should require the state to publish a summary that explains lawmakers decide how general fund revenue is spent. Supporters of the tax say the proposed constitutional amendment would dedicate the additional money raised to transportation and education. A Western Massachusetts Air Base is celebrating some new additions. Today at Westover Air Reserve Base in Chicopee, a ceremony was held to open the UMass Transportation Center's Aviation Research and Training Facility. It will serve as a hub for the entire Northeast to provide military and civilian training, research, and a 360-degree air traffic control simulator. The event also marked the completion of a reconstructed 2.2-mile-long runway to serve large military aircraft. Sports, the Red Sox will take on the Blue Jays again tonight. Up in Toronto, Bruins host the Panthers at the Garden. The forecast showers tonight, lows around 48 degrees, slight chance of showers early tomorrow morning, then partly sunny, the highs will be near 60. Right now it's 53 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Progressive. Progressive Commercial Insurance protects small businesses, from retailers to tradespeople, covering a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More for entrepreneurs at ProgressiveCommercial.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Rob Schmitz. Another mass grave was discovered outside of Mariupol yesterday, this one just north of the city. Ukrainian officials say it's the latest example of Russia trying to hide evidence of war crimes. And Ukraine's prosecutor general is determined to hold Russian President Vladimir Putin accountable. Irina Venediktova is leading Ukraine's investigations into war crimes. NPR's Franco Ordonez recently sat down with her to discuss the cases, and he joins us now. And a warning, this story contains descriptions that may be upsetting. Hello, Franco. Hello, Rob. So what can you tell us about Venediktova? You know, she's 43. She's a former member of parliament and a former law professor. She's also the first woman to hold the job. She's been in it for two years, but the war has really totally reshaped her focus. She says she spends most of her time now in the field, working directly with her 8,000 prosecutors and meeting with victims. And now she's really attentive on trying to punish Putin and his military leaders. And she speaks about this very forcefully with this matter-of-fact tenacity of a prosecutor. Wow, 8,000 prosecutors. That, that sounds uh, pretty, uh, yeah. pretty impressive. How is she going about investigating these cases? 
You know, she has opened more than 8,100 investigations into alleged war crimes and identified hundreds of suspects. She says a lot of those cases are concentrated around Kyiv and villages like Bucha that Russians abandoned after a month of occupation. But she says it's far from complete because they haven't had access to areas like Mariupol where they've discovered mass graves holding hundreds of bodies. And she says the real number is much higher. No one knows, doubled or in three time or in five time. Nobody can say about it. It, it is a full-scale invasion to our country, very aggressive, very brutal. You know, but she says that she and her investigators have already been taking testimonials from refugees who have escaped Mariupol. And she also cited Russian airstrikes on the maternity hospital in Mariupol and other attacks on critical infrastructure. So it's still early in the investigation, but what kinds of things is she finding? You know, Rob, everyone has seen some of these horrific images, but she's poring over them and she's looking for patterns, you know, trying to decipher what was targeted, what was indiscriminate. And she acknowledges they've had an impact a bit personally. Hmm. I do everything as a prosecutor, and even now you see that I try to be not emotional. But from other side, of course, I am a Ukrainian citizen. I see everything uh, every day from morning till night that my country is blooding, actually. And she, you know, while sitting there, she asked her assistant to give her a picture of a teenage boy, which, again, I just want to note is graphic and upsetting. And the boy, he's on a hospital table. Natalia, please show Rostislav the, the picture with Rostislav. It is boy. You just now you just imagine what I see here, and this is chest of the boy and the piece of projectile inside this boy, this chest. Rob, you can see a greenish gold shell lodged inside his chest. You know that boy's name was Roslav. He was just 14. You know, Venediktova asked me, she said, how was she supposed to feel after seeing something like this? You know, was she supposed to forgive? And she said, just no. That, that is an awful image. Uh, and as awful as it is, still these kinds of cases have historically been very hard to win, right? Yeah. I mean, building a case that goes all the way to the top to hold Putin and other top leaders accountable will be tough. As one of her advisors told me, modern leaders just do not write down orders to kill and rape innocent people. Right. But it doesn't mean that they're not responsible. Now, that advisor told me it's still very worthwhile just to document these crimes for history, even if Putin isn't actually locked up. But Venediktova, she said that's not enough. And she said that she won't quit until Putin and his military leaders are convicted. That's NPR correspondent Franco Ordonez. Franco, thank you. Thanks, Rob. To other news, the world's richest man is purchasing Twitter for about 44 billion bucks. In a tweet where else, Elon Musk said, quote, I hope that even my worst critics remain on Twitter because that is where that is what free speech means. Well, those critics point out that Twitter can be rife with disinformation and racism and harassment, and they question whether Elon Musk is the right person to address those problems. Among those questioning, Anand Girdardas. He's author of the book Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World, and wrote about the acquisition for the New York Times opinion section. Anand, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. All right. So when Elon Musk says he wants to promote free speech on the platform, that seems like a good idea in principle. Why does it raise a red flag for you? Free speech is a great 
concept and I'm a, I'm a big supporter as I know you are, you work in the business of it, uh, as do I. But free speech has become a dog whistle in American life in recent years. And Elon Musk means it in a much more specific way and he's been much more specific about it. And what he's talking about is the feeling uh, that what is frankly content moderation on sites like Twitter uh, and other social media platforms mm -hmm. is suppressing free speech. In other words, efforts that have been made to clamp down on very real problems that you and I see on Twitter every day, which is Nazi speech going unchecked, uh, racism going unchecked, disinformation going unchecked, misogyny, rape threats to, to women who've made the mistake of having opinions going unchecked. There have been modest, inadequate, but modest efforts in recent years to clamp down. And Elon Musk thinks that kind of reform, which actually allows more people to speak more freely and safely, is the problem. Um, you actually take this a little bit farther in your piece for the Times. I want to quote one line. You ask, what happens when the incarnation of a problem buys the right to decide what the problem is and how to fix it? I mean, you're just to, to take one example, the, the bullying and harassment problem on fix it uh, on, on Twitter. Why is Musk the wrong person to fix that? It's not only the wrong person, it is the perfect embodiment of the problem, right? So, so I, I kind of focus on three in the piece. And when I talk to people who work at Twitter, these are the three they're thinking about, right? So Twitter has a disinformation problem by its own acknowledgement, right? And Elon Musk has shown himself to be someone who spreads falsehoods. Uh, Twitter has a racism problem, which again, Twitter has fessed up to and has tried to fix and not done enough, but but owned up to the fact that it is working to make it a less bigoted, uh, harassing place for people of color. Elon Musk runs a company that the California Department of Fair Housing and Employment uh, recently said is a segregated workplace. Not awkward, not mean, segregated. And, and Twitter has a bullying and harassment problem, as particularly women and people of color experience every day. And Elon Musk is the incarnation of that kind of social media behavior, sicking his followers on people who disagree with him, uh, living in a kind of perpetual Bill Gates, for example, belittling Bill Gates. Just, I mean, setting aside for the moment, uh, you know, the question of Elon Musk and whether he's the right man for the job, are you assigning too much power to Twitter? I mean, most Americans aren't even on Twitter. How does this affect them? Uh, Twitter is incredibly powerful in certain ways. It's not powerful in the way that network television was in the 70s with, you know, 40 million people watching the same thing. Uh, but it is, I think Elon Musk is correct when he calls it the closest we have to some kind of global town square. And now one rich guy has bought the thing he described as the town square. A town square is necessarily a kind of public thing. And so the problem is he is going to have a disproportionate power to shape discourse, shape uh, journalism, shape how people think about public problems. And a man who embodies many of our biggest public problems is going to have the chance to shape the solution to right. those problems. Just and a couple seconds. Solutions that Sorry, him. just a couple seconds left. So a yes or no question. Are you going to stay on Twitter? I will stay on Twitter and I hope Elon Musk does not. We will leave it there. Anand Girdardas, author of the book Winners Take All. It was a pleasure. Thanks for talking with us. Thanks for having me. On Earth Day last week, a man lit himself on fire outside the U.S. Supreme Court. The Colorado climate activist died of his injuries the next day. Colorado Public Radio's Sam Brash reports he may have meant to bring attention to climate change, but his intentions remain unclear. 
After the incident last Friday evening in Washington, focus turned to Win Allen Bruce's Facebook profile. The professional photographer left behind many black and white self-portraits. They show him as slender with rounded glasses, his eyes set on the camera. His post focused on two main topics, his Buddhist faith and climate change. There's a haunting edit to one comment about irreversible global warming. It includes a fire emoji and the date of Bruce's death, written by him earlier this month. A case pending before the Supreme Court could eliminate the Environmental Protection Agency's authority to restrict climate warming emissions. His father, Douglas Bruce, says he doesn't know if that's why his son took his own life. What he could confirm was his son's passion for the natural world. His commitment and concern about the environment and climate issues, for example, is really very heartfelt and central to who he is. Members of Boulder, Colorado's Buddhist community have given contradictory statements about Bruce's motivation. Kriti Kanko is a climate scientist and Zen priest who says she practiced with Bruce. She tweeted that Bruce planned the act for at least a year to bring attention to the climate crisis. Later, she signed a public statement with other Buddhist leaders, saying no one was aware of his plans beforehand. Other friends had no clarity, just heartache. What he did, I don't know why he did it, how he did Boulder sculptor Brian Grossman says he met Bruce more than a decade ago while grocery shopping. Grossman has multiple sclerosis and uses an electric tricycle. He says Bruce, who worked at the store, would help him unload it from his car. They became friends and would meet every once in a while for tea, often talking about government indifference to people and the planet. And while he respected Bruce's passion for politics, he also hopes he's remembered as just a really good guy. He always wanted to shake my hand and say, doing a great job, you know? And Grossman says he'd always have the same reply. You are too. For NPR News, I'm Sam Brash in Denver. If you or someone you know may be considering suicide, contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. 53 degrees in Boston at 418. Ahead on All Things Considered, President Biden's approval ratings among Gen Z and millennial voters have been slipping. We'll examine what that may mean come November. That's ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Next Generation. Performed by Boston Ballet School and Boston Ballet 2 with New England Conservatory Prep School, May 11th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Skylark Vocal Ensemble with Sub Rosa, a collaboration with composer Gregory Brown and author Dan Brown. April 27th through 30th, skylarkensemble.org. In business news, Boston-based General Electric is reporting it lost more than $1 billion in the first three months of the year. That's a loss of 99 cents per share. The industrial giant CEO says the company is facing new supply chain challenges and rising costs for raw materials. Shares in GE fell 10 percent in trading today. On Wall Street, stocks were down sharply. The Dow down about 2.4 percent at 33,240. NASDAQ down almost 4 percent, 12,491. The S&P 500 down 2.8% at 41.75. It's 419. 
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Somerville Open Studios this weekend. See works by hundreds of local artists at the Somerville Museum and over 70 city locations. SomervilleOpenStudios.org And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, sponsor of Growing Healthy Futures with Greater Boston Food Bank. MathWorks.com slash GBFB well, some showers tonight. The lows around 48 degrees. Slight chance of showers early tomorrow morning, then partly sunny. The highs will be near 60, mostly sunny and breezy on Thursday. Right now it's 53 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help create a comprehensive plan for a client's full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from Indeed, a hiring platform committed to helping businesses of all sizes. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct interviews all in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Rob Schmitz. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. As the political calendar inches towards midterm elections coming right up in November, President Biden's approval ratings are down overall. Democratic pollsters are really sounding the alarm about his approval ratings among young voters. A recent Gallup poll noted support for the president had plummeted 21 points among Gen Z, that is people born after 1997, and the slump in approval extends through millennials and into Gen X. So what gives? Well, to make sense of this, we are joined by Christina Sinsun Ramirez. She's president and executive director of Next Gen America. That's one of the biggest youth vote mobilizing organizations in the country. I asked her, what's driving this? What we're seeing from the polling and talking to millions of young people across the country is that young people are very clear that they are inheriting a climate crisis, a democracy in decline, and deep and grotesque income inequality. And, you know, a lot of people don't realize, but young Americans, young adult Americans, are the first generation in American history to be worse off than their parents. Hmm. Do you see differences among the generations? Gen Z turnoffs, is they the same as millennials or as Gen X? I don't know. I'm Gen X. I don't know if we count as young anymore, but at the upper end of what you're watching? Uh, I'm a millennial, and you know when you combine millennials and Gen Z, they are the largest voting bloc in American history, 65 million young people that are eligible to vote in that younger demographic. And they are consistently progressive, but a lot of them see themselves as independents. They care mostly about issues. And while a lot of young people went and voted to defeat Trump, a lot of them also wanted to see real structural change on the economy. And there is one thing that is really critical in the back pocket of the Biden administration that would greatly help Democrats, which is canceling student debt. Um, And it's something that the Biden administration really needs to consider to improve the lives and show that they understand the economic pain of in a generation that feels like They don't know when they can have kids. They don't know when they can buy a house. They don't have a lot of security in their economic future. Which is so interesting because, you know, the Biden administration would argue that that a lot of things are going right with the economy, that it is better than it was two years ago. Unemployment is way down, for example. Ordinary Americans don't judge how the economy is doing just by the GDP or how well big corporations are doing. They judge it by how well they're able to make ends meet 
how it impacts their pocketbook, how much housing costs, how much they're earning. Truth be told, Biden doesn't control everything that happens in the economy by any means. No president does. Um, but when we talk about the issues that especially young people care about, you see they want big structural change on the economy. They want uh, a, a minimum of a $15 a minimum wage in this country. Uh, they want to hold big corporations accountable. They are suspicious of how much inequality has grown in this country. Well, so is the Democratic Party going to put the, the time and, and energy into this? I mean, in your view, does the White House have a plan to turn things around before the November elections? You know, I'm starting to see people have the right conversations, but for me, it's not just about the conversation about the youth vote. It's about ultimately budget priorities and how they spend money speaking and reaching to millions of young people. Um, you know, we have 25,000 volunteers across the country that helped us text, call, organize on dating apps and Twitch and all kinds of ways digitally that I'm, since I'm a grandma millennial, is too old even for me to <laughs> fully understand. But we were able to reach millions of young voters that way. And it's really critical that all of those strategies be employed for 22. Christina Sinsoon Ramirez, grandma millennial and president and executive director of Next Gen America. Thanks for talking with us. Thanks. I'll start using that in my title. Take care. In northern Illinois, a multi-million dollar airport expansion on a rare patch of prairie threatens an endangered bumblebee. Environmentalists say the Endangered Species Act is not helping protect it. Juan Pablo Ramirez Franco reports. Mary Griswold was recently at a makeshift party outside of the Chicago Rockford International Airport. The group celebrated the emergence of the rusty patched bumblebee, a federally endangered species since 2017. The queen is supposed to come out of hibernation around this time. So that's one of the things that got us motivated to come out today. This celebration was the latest in a series of events organized by a grassroots campaign trying to save a rare remnant prairie, which is also the site of a proposed $50 million expansion at the Rockford Airport. The bee was found on the prairie last fall, and that was enough to temporarily halt construction. It also triggered an Endangered Species Act consultation with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Rob Telfer is with the Friends of Illinois Nature Preserves. He says saving the bumblebee is linked to saving its habitat. The problem is the Endangered Species Act does not protect remnant prairies. In 2020, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service decided against designating critical habitat for the rusty patched bumblebee. That additional protection would require federal agencies to determine that a project using federal dollars would impact threatened or endangered species or their critical habitat. The service concluded that habitat destruction is not the bee's main threat calling the bee a habitat generalist. That decision ushered in a legal challenge by the Natural Resources Defense Council. The group's Lucas Rhodes argues that habitat remains key. The tool is there. It's in the Endangered Species Act, but the Fish and Wildlife Service is just not using that tool in this particular circumstance to protect the bee's habitat, and that's the problem. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service would not comment for this story citing the lawsuit. Neither would airport officials, though they did confirm that the consultation is now in its final phase and the service has 135 days to deliver a final decision. The rusty patch bumblebee was once common throughout much of the Midwest and Northeast United States into Canada. It's now disappeared from nearly 90% of its native range. Margarita Lopez Uribe teaches entomology at Penn State and has been studying bees for more than two decades. She says habitat loss is a major driver of the bee's demise. 
So a lot of areas that used to have very diverse floral resources have now been converted to agriculture or, you know, through urbanization. And basically, there is not a lot of food available. Lopez Uribe adds that on top of habitat loss, pesticides, and the unknown effects of climate change further complicate life for this bumblebee. The airport has installed a chain link fence and added a large no trespassing sign to deter people from getting on the land while it's in legal limbo. Conservationist Rob Telfer says he's fine letting the legal process play out, but says the prairie and the bee are worth fighting for. We're out here for a, a few acres because that's all that's left because we've been giving these tiny little pieces to different projects for, you know, hundreds of years and we're running out of space. In the meantime, environmentalists and the airport officials are waiting to see if summer on the remnant prairie here will be filled with the sound of bumblebees or bulldozers. For NPR News, I'm Juan Pablo Ramirez Franco in Rockford. Support for All Tech Considered comes from C3AI. C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI. And from Zoom, used by half a million businesses, a platform for phone, chat, workspaces, events, apps, and video, enabling real-time collaboration for teams around the globe. Zoom. How the world connects. And this is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 53 degrees in Boston at 429. Ahead on All Things Considered, we'll hear from the Deputy Director of the Europe and Central Asia Division for Human Rights Watch about the role Chechnya's leader plays in the Russian-Ukraine war. That's just ahead here on WBUR. We'll have some showers tonight. The lows around 48 degrees. Slight chance of showers early tomorrow morning, then partly sunny. The highs will be around 60 degrees. Terry Stone, Managing Partner of the Americas for Oliver Wyman, a WBUR underwriter. WBUR's programming is smart, creative, informative, and thought-provoking. Just like our clients and employees who look to WBUR to help them understand the world. We are very proud to support WBUR. To learn more about underwriting on WBUR, go to wbur.org sponsorship. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Summer Term at Boston University. Advance your studies with more than 700 courses in over 70 subjects, ranging from business, math, and sciences to humanities, languages, communication, and more. For Summer Term dates and to register, visit bu.edu summer. And Merrimack Repertory Theater, presenting master storyteller and all things considered's Kevin Kling in Best Summer Ever, May 4th through the 22nd, MRT.org. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin wrapped up talks in Germany with military officials from 40 countries in a bid to increase support for Ukraine. As Esme Nicholson reports, Austin says the world is united in its resolve to help Ukraine fight Russian aggression, and he dismisses warnings from Moscow about nuclear war as dangerous rhetoric. Speaking at Rammstein Air Base, Austin announced that the U.S. and its allies will deliver heavier weapons to Ukraine, stressing the stakes of Russia's invasion reach beyond Ukraine and even beyond Europe. We're all here because of Ukraine's courage, 
because of the innocent civilians who have been killed and because of the suffering that your people still endure. Austin expressed particular thanks to host country Germany for its unexpected decision to export Jeppard anti-aircraft systems to Kiev after refusing previous requests. He added that the meeting, which he called to, quote, strengthen the arsenal of Ukrainian democracy, will take place monthly. For NPR News, I'm Esme Nicholson in Berlin. The Supreme Court is considering arguments today on the controversial Trump-era immigration policy for asylum seekers known as the Remain in Mexico program, which forces some people who want asylum in the U.S. to wait in Mexico for their hearings. President Biden suspended the policy on his first day in office, but after Missouri and Texas sued, lower courts ordered it restored. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton says the White House needs to talk to Mexico. They can work out something with Mexico. There's a lot that we have in common with Mexico. There's a lot of uh, interest together that, that we need to work on, and this is one of those issues. Immigration advocacy groups call it un-American and inhumane. Wall Street dropped sharply by the closing bell. The Dow down 809, Nasdaq down 514. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Harvard University will spend $100 million to implement the recommendations of a report detailing the school's history with slavery. Harvard officials released the report today. It breaks down the university's physical, financial, and intellectual ties to the slave trade. WBUR's Hannah Shinatri reports. The report is an exhaustive account. It finds Harvard's faculty, staff, and leaders enslaved more than 70 people in the 17th and 18th centuries. The people they enslaved are listed in the report by name. The review also finds much of the infrastructure that led to Harvard's wealth and national reputation came from donors who made their money in the slave trade. The report's recommendations include formal recognition and a memorial for the people enslaved at Harvard. It also calls for increased financial support for research into racial inequality. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Hannah Schnatry. An agreement has been reached between the state and federal governments that could lead to an expansion of passenger rail service between Worcester, Springfield, and Pittsfield. Governor Baker and Congressman Richard Neal announced today there is an agreement on a path forward towards creating a new rail authority. The authority's goal would be to connect eastern and western Massachusetts with more frequent passenger rail service. Officials have not released a timeline for the next steps. Boston-based Fidelity Investments has launched a new way for people saving for retirement to access cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. The company says it is now offering people with 401ks the opportunity to put up to 20% of their investments in the currency. Cryptocurrencies can be volatile, and the government has warned the retirement industry to exercise extreme care when offering programs like this. A Fidelity official says its customers expect the company to develop innovative retirement solutions. It's 4.34. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Lyric Opera, presenting Grammy Award-winning Terrence Blanchard's Champion, an Opera in Jazz, Cutler Majestic Theater, May 18th through 22nd, blo.org, and Sunbug Solar, offering solar and battery storage renewable energy solutions for your home or business. Learn how you can build a resilient future at sunbugsolar.com. In sports, the Red Sox take on the Blue Jays again tonight in Toronto. Bruins host the Panthers at the Garden. In the forecast, showers tonight, lows around 48 degrees. A slight chance of showers early tomorrow morning, then partly sunny. The highs will be near 60, mostly sunny and breezy on Thursday, a high of 53. Right now, it is 53 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from C3AI, C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Rob Schmitz. And I'm Ari Shapiro. That is the voice of the Chechen Republic's leader and notorious Kremlin ally Ramzan Kadyrov. In a video posted the day after Russia invaded Ukraine, he promised Chechen fighters would occupy Ukraine's hotspots. This is despite the fact that Kadyrov's own father, less than a generation ago, fought against Russia's wars on their home. To better understand the role of Kadyrov and this Muslim-majority republic in the ongoing war, I spoke to Rachel Denber. She's deputy director of the Europe and Central Asia Division for Human Rights Watch. It's good to have you here. Uh, good to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Chechen leader Ramzan Kadyrov has been described as brutal, Putin's puppet, his attack dog. The U.S. has sanctioned him for human rights abuses, including persecution and torture of LGBT people. So in the years leading up to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, what earned Kadyrov this reputation? Kadyrov earned this reputation through his absolutely brutal and feudalistic tight hold grip over Chechnya, where he has been the leader basically uh, since the assassination of his father, who was the leader of Chechnya uh, in 2004. His fearsome uh, security services are responsible for great numbers of enforced disappearances, summary executions, house burning. These days, Kadyrov exercises control through his brutal Praetorian Guard and also through extensive um, surveillance. And can you paint a picture for us of the man himself? I mean, you've described a really iron-fisted rule, but the man himself, Ramzan, is almost a larger-than-life figure. He has developed a cult around himself. Uh, for, for a number of years, he was quite active on Instagram, where he allowed himself to say the most outrageous, uh, flamboyant, and inflammatory things. Um, he sees Putin as kind of his, his patron. But I think it's also a complicated relationship because, you know, the Kremlin believes that Ramzan keeps a lid on any kind of dissent through these absolutely brutal methods of enforced disappearance, killings and, and the like, torture, uh, quelled uh, the Islamist insurgency that had continued after the Second Chechen War had ended. Um, so I think that the Kremlin felt that Ramzan kept a lid on insurgency, so Ramzan pretty much has a carte blanche to do whatever he wants. But what might surprise people here is that Ramzan's father was at one point fighting against the Russians and was considered a Chechen nationalist. And so how did leadership go from trying to fight for independence to fighting on Russia's behalf against Ukraine? Well, that's right. Um, Ramzan's father, Ahmad Kadyrov, was aligned with the anti-Russian forces in Chechnya and eventually was uh, changed sides. And when Papa changed sides, obviously Ramzan changed sides. Um, and they tied their fate to the Kremlin. Um, for what reasons? I know it's it's really hard to say. They, they acquired a tremendous power in Chechnya by, by doing so. 
And so when you look at the role of Chechen forces, who are actually known as Kadyrovsky, they're that loyal to the leader, when you look at their role in Ukraine, is this simply doing a favor for a patron, Vladimir Putin, or is there more going on here? I think that it's showing their power, because if they throw their force behind Russia's forces in Ukraine, then they're owed something, aren't they? Um, but it's also, I think it's also important to underscore that Kadyrov is Putin's most loyal and most enthusiastic subordinate. Um, having said that, it, it, is, it is a very complicated relationship because I think that there are many in the security services who are not great fans of Ramzan Kadyrov, but they tolerate him because they know that because Kadyrov keeps, uh, has total control over the, you know, his own security services and the like in Chechnya, if they remove him, who knows what he might do. That is Rachel Denver, Deputy Director of the Europe and Central Asia Division for Human Rights Watch. Thank you for speaking with us. Thank you so much. China continues to pursue a zero COVID strategy. As a result, the 26 million citizens of its most populous city are subject to various degrees of lockdown as the country experiences a surge of the coronavirus. Shanghai has been in lockdown for nearly five weeks now. One among those millions is Ming. She asked that we only use her first name for her own safety. She works as a nanny in Shanghai in a fairly well-to-do area. And when we spoke earlier, I wanted to know how she was faring this many weeks in. Oh, yearning for freedom. I really wanted to go out. For a lot of people, they are feeling the same. Like people keep asking when is this going to be finished. But for the past few weeks, the new cases are around like 15 to 20,000 each day. So I don't know. Anyway, it feels like it's going to last for another maybe a month or two months. And there are so many people, including me, who have been fully vaccinated and boosted and have still gotten COVID mm -hmm. because of this new variant, because of Omicron and how contagious it is. Because it's so contagious, do you think that the zero COVID policy is a smart one? Mm, it's hard for me to say. So I kind of like agree on both sides. Like on one side, people say like we should go like Europe or America. But on the other side, people are saying, like, you cannot take this risk because we have a lot of old, old people or kids. I'm kind of on the both sides because I have my grandparents, which are old, and I have little kids in, within my family. I don't want to take the risk of losing my family. But also, I feel like because of, as you said, how contagious this virus is, it sounds really difficult. Like right now in Shanghai, it's, it's kind of like out of control and also there are like other cities in China which are going through like I don't know they are having this virus spreading also so I don't I really don't know yeah I, I'd love to know from your perspective I mean you're in Pudong and you live in a house so it's probably quieter where you are but what's what's mm -hmm. the outdoor life like are people out and about are people visibly angry about this what are other people saying about this situation at this point in time so in where I'm living, I think it's pretty peaceful because our situation is much better than I think than most of the people because here in this neighborhood, people are rich. So they, they don't have to worry about foods. I think they have their own ways to figure out about that. And also we, we don't, like for us, we didn't really get like really locked at a small space for a long time. You can still walk in the neighborhood. Right. So I think 
because of that, in my neighborhood, people are mostly like more peaceful. But as far as I know, I think they were in one of the buildings where my friend was living. Uh, my friend is living. Um, they had protested about food for in the very beginning because they don't they don't have food. And then at that point, government didn't start didn't start to give food to people. And they had like the whole building <laughs> screaming like we need food. But it didn't go on news. It's like. I mean, it didn't go on news, but after that, they got like several times of food from the government. Thank you so much for talking to us. We've been speaking with Ming, a nanny who lives in Shanghai. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. There are musicals about fairy tales, musicals about founding fathers, and now a musical about one woman's journey through competitive college bangra dancing. NPR's Hafsa Fatima recently caught up with the show's writers and brought us this story. When I dance, I'm connected. When I dance, I hear. That's the sound of Ishko Kalme Kojie. A song from the new musical "Banging It." It had its first production this spring at the La Jolla Playhouse in San Diego. Bhangra is a Punjabi folk dance from India and Pakistan. As time gone on, it has become popularized in the U.S. through these intercollegiate competitions, where they honor the traditions of Bhangra and they put their own American flavor to it. That's Rehana Lu Mirza, who co-wrote the book for the musical. She's followed Pangra competitions around the country. I became obsessed with it shortly after graduating from college, and I would trade writing classes for tickets to Pangra competitions. She co-wrote the book with her husband, Mike Liu. Longtime playwrights, this was their first musical, and it explores similar themes they've brought to other plays. Within our plays, there is a real bruising race politics. And indeed, like the way that our marriage was formed was from having a lot of conflict over what our responsibilities are as Asian American writers and as both individuals and kind of members of a community. Lu is third generation Chinese American. Lu Mirza is the child of Pakistani and Filipino immigrants. The protagonist of their musical is a mixed race college student named Mary who joins her collegiate Pangra team in order to connect with her culture. But when Mary and her team disagree about how much their dancing should keep with tradition or embrace new styles, conflict arises. That conflict is a larger sort of meditation on being uh, multi-generational Americans and sort of how do we hold on to our culture and, and yet let it evolve. Lou and Lou Mirza turn to composer Sam Wilmot to write the music and lyrics. We wooed him by taking him to Basement Bhangra <laughs> as well and to um, Big Apple Bhangra competition in Queens. We basically rented a zip car and zipped him away. <laughs> Wilmot loves Golden Age musicals that put dance at the heart of storytelling, but writing in the Bhangra style was new to him. I think uh, the first thing to do was just to listen listen, listen, listen. You know, we went to bunker competitions, but also just like broad strokes research. Over time, they added other styles of music, 
poetic recitations from India and Pakistan called ghazals, Bollywood numbers, and of course, pop music. Wilmot says it was important to give the music cultural depth and scope. So they brought in Indian classical musician Deep Singh to co-orchestrate. There's uh, a moment where we, we go from like guzzle, but it, there's still a theater aspect to it. But then we go like suddenly into this classical world with Dan Buda and Lehera and, and classical tabla playing. Uh, and then we go back into theater again. It's the coolest thing ever to hear. Hafsa Fatima, NPR News. The show has closed in La Jolla and heads to Boston later this year. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 53 degrees in Boston at 448. Ahead on All Things Considered, the U.N. Secretary General has been in Moscow to meet with Russian President Vladimir Putin. We'll have details ahead here on WBUR. Coming to City Space on Friday, April 29th, Boston Poet Laureate Portia Olaiwola MCs an evening of poetry readings from Boston's up-and-coming poets. Tickets at WBUR.org slash events. In the forecast, we'll have some showers tonight. The lows around 48 degrees. A slight chance of some showers early tomorrow morning, then partly sunny. Highs will be around 60. Mostly sunny and breezy on Thursday. The highs around 53 degrees. Right now, it is 53 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by TD Garden. Tenor Andrea Bocelli with songs from his album Believe, plus crossover hits and love songs, December 10th. Tickets available at Ticketmaster.com. And Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive function coaching, yoga, and exercise are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Summer semester starts June 6th. Semesteroff.com. It's an urban farm, it's an urban greenhouse, and this is an urban problem. Around New England, people are fighting climate change by eating and growing food sustainably. What we expect as a result of climate change is extreme precipitation. And as long as we route it, store it, save it, then it can turn into extreme food. So both of our neighbors get a lot of veggies from here. To learn what you can do, sign up for our newsletter, Cooked. Go to WBUR.org cooked. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Rob Schmitz. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Danica Rome became the first openly transgender state legislator in the country when she was sworn in as a member of the Virginia House of Delegates back in 2018. And she defeated a Republican who had served for a quarter of a century. In her new book, Burn the Page, Rome explores the experiences that got her to that moment, as well as the music that moved her along the way. NPR's Juana Summers spoke with Rome about her new memoir. Yes, Danica Rome made history when she was elected to represent voters in suburban northern Virginia. But take a listen to how she describes herself. You know, you don't get too many transgender, metalhead, reporter, yogini, stepmom, vegetarians running for office. That's right. She is an openly transgender woman and former journalist who has also fronted a metal band. 
and Rome was reelected in November to a third term. She said she feels like her story is relatable. I like to think that for all the, you know, eccentricities, you know, I have and even the, uh, you know, just different worlds of identities, I think one thing that's very common on this is that, you know, like I do know what it means to have to work. I do know what it means to have to make ends meet and to struggle financially. In her memoir, she addresses head on the types of stories that most politicians would seek to bury as deep as possible. And so I asked Danica Rome, why put yourself out there like this? I want to encourage people to own their own narratives and set fire to the stories that they don't want to be in anymore. And this, the whole point of this is about being yourself at your most authentic sense. And in trans world, one of the things we kind of talk about is your authentic sense of self. And I think this applies regardless of whether you're cis, trans, or whoever you are, that if you are able to reflect on the very core of your identity and the very core of your being, why would you want someone else to tell that story for you? Your book is sprinkled with some quotes from opposition research you commissioned on yourself. I want to read one example. Danica Rome in 2008 was videotaped performing a keg stand as people chanted, suck it, and then proceeded to pick up the keg and chuck it through the window. Seriously. So that last part was an embellishment. Did I do the first two things on that? Yes. But I do not have the upper body strength to be able to perform that last stunt. Therefore, the whole thing, the reason I want to include that in the book is that when other people even write, just in that case, it was a Facebook status just among friends. That was just most to make people laugh, right? Other people find things that are either embellishments or not true about you, and they can be the ones who will tell this story. And very much in politics, what ends up happening is that people will create a narrative about who you are in terms of what they think is politically advantageous for their side. And so one of the things I really wanted to do was kind of own the entire concept of like, hey, look, things that are written about you online or things that you've written about yourself online, good, bad, right, wrong, correct, incorrect, you've got to be able to own that, recognize it for what it is, and at the same time, use it to empower you to feel confident about telling your own stories, and which is so much of this book. You wrote really openly about your childhood growing up in Virginia and the struggle that you described to fit in. One thing that stuck out to me when I was reading it is that you described how, and I'm quoting how you described yourself, that as a closet case trans girl, that's that experience taught you how to be resilient. Well, so I, on the one hand, very much know what it's like to be too afraid to be yourself in front of other people. And so you put up a facade and you try to become a version of you that you believe is socially acceptable to other people. And because I was so scared of being outed, I was scared of other people, you know, who I knew finding out that I was trans and everything and just looking for these moments of genuine feminine expression. It was so hard. And when I think in the modern context about what these kids are going through today, where they're very, the very state legislators and governors who are elected to serve them and their school board members and their local government officials are singling out and stigmatizing their most vulnerable constituents. Why on earth and how on earth would you look at a trans kid 
and want to demonize them and hurt them rather than say, what can I do to help you and your family day? What can I do to serve you? What can I do to make you a part of this community and make you feel welcomed and safe and respected because of who you are, not despite it? One thing that's come up over and over again in our conversation, but also in your book, is this idea of being seen for who one is. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the importance of that visibility of being seen. So the way I like to phrase it is being vulnerable enough to be visible. And when you're being visible, it's an inherent state of vulnerability because you're putting yourself out there. You're letting people know who you are and that you exist. And so I like to think that my vulnerability, my visibility in 2017, as scary as it would be for me sometimes, it would inspire other adults to run for office. And it would also inspire kids who would send me messages and they would, you know, just like I got handwritten letters in the mail. One of them was from a kid in Hampton Roads who said, you're the first person I'm ever telling this to, but I'm trans and I'm scared, but I thought that you would understand. And I thought, you know, at least they know that they have a friend in my office. At least they know that there's someone like them and who hurts when they hurt and at the same time is trying to do something about it too. I cannot have this conversation with you without talking about the through line that music and particularly metal has had in your life. Um, I would love to know what made it so necessary for you when you were growing up to just hit up all of these shows and all of these venues night after night? Well, you know, I always tell people that when you were into metal, metal isn't just a sound and it's not just music. It's a lifestyle. It's, you know, the way you dress, the way you talk to your friends, the way you're interacting with other people. The reason that this is, it was all so important for me was I was looking for a sense of community. And, you know, I also knew what it's like to be singled out. And so, you know, when you're a teenager and you're trying to, you know, figure out your identity, you're trying to figure out how you fit into the world, you know, one thing that very much resonated with me from metal was that kind of audio rebellion that is very much inherent to it. It's very anti-authoritarian. It's very intense musically. Danica, you are a stepmom, a yogi, a metalhead, a delegate. I, what is next on the horizon for you? I know you were just recently reelected. Any plans of running for other offices? Uh, well, so not Congress and not statewide, but uh, check in with me uh, May 9th. I'll have another announcement about my next uh, political move then. Danica Rome is a Virginia state legislator and the author of the new book, Burn the Page. It's out now. Juana Summers, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Raining city of Odessa has always had Russian roots, and now residents are debating whether and how symbols of that heritage, from monuments to the language, should endure. Come back to Morning Edition tomorrow to hear some of that conversation. This is NPR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. From the Alzheimer's Association, dedicated to the advancement of Alzheimer's research. At any given moment, research, discovery, and learning are happening. Learn more at ALZ.org. From Aspiration 
working to help people combat climate change with a credit card that lets them plant a tree with every purchase. One card, zero carbon footprint. Aspiration.com slash credit. Aspiration Financial, LLC. And from the Lemelson Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR and online at WBUR.org and on the WBUR Listen app. It's 53 degrees in Boston at just a minute before 5 o'clock. Ahead on All Things Considered, the U.N. Secretary General is in Moscow to meet with Vladimir Putin. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Walnut Hills School for the Arts, championing creativity, arts and academics for grades 9 to 12. Apply for 2022-23, walnuthillarts.org. And Innuendo's Hunter Douglas Energy Smart Style event, window fashions designed to increase energy efficiency. Hunter Douglas at Innuendo in Natick and Innuendo.com. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. They're getting a lot of tactical information about movement of forces, um, state of logistics and the like that are absolutely invaluable. Ukraine is regularly intercepting Russian communications and it's having an impact on the battlefield. It's Tuesday, April 26th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Also today, the United Nations Secretary General is in Moscow for meetings with Russian President Vladimir Putin. We'll get an update. Harvard University has committed $100 million to redress its ties to slavery. The university says the wealth used to found the school came from wealthy slave owners. And SpaceX launches the next NASA astronauts to the International Space Station tomorrow, including Jessica Watkins, who is to become the first black woman on a long-duration mission. It's 5.01, now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Numerous explosions were heard and felt in the southeastern Ukrainian city of Zaporizhia this morning. Local officials say at least one person was killed. That city is a hub for civilians fleeing Russian-held territory about 20 to 30 miles from the front lines of the conflict. NPR's Tim Mack reports on the blast that rattled evacuees. Just before 7 a.m. local time, two explosions shook the ground. It was followed by a third shortly after. Residents of the city seemed unfazed by the blasts, which local media said struck a commercial area. By mid-morning, the streets of the city were filled with Ukrainians going about their day. But for Natalia Miller, who had fled from the front lines in the east, it was a terrifying reminder that violence was still not far away. She says she and her dog Busia hid as the blasts happened in the early morning. Tim Mack, NPR News, Zaporizhia. Just back from a trip to Ukraine, Secretary of State Antony Blinken was on Capitol Hill today for a budget hearing. Blinken telling lawmakers Russia's, quote, war of aggression makes U.S. diplomacy more important. Here's NPR's Michelle Kellerman. Blinken says he's been rallying allies and partners to impose tough economic costs on Russia, and the U.S. is rushing in more weapons to help Ukraine defend itself. The budget request before you uh, predated this crisis. But fully funding it is critical, in my judgment, to ensuring that Russia's war in Ukraine is a strategic failure for the Kremlin 
and serves as a powerful lesson to those who might consider following its path. He says Ukrainians have won the battle for Kyiv and that he saw the once vibrant city coming back to life during his trip there on Sunday. Blinken spent more than 20 hours traveling from Poland through Ukraine. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. The Biden administration says it is moving toward making the antiviral COVID-19 treatment Paxlovid more available to the general public. The administration at the time trying to reassure doctors there's an ample supply of the drug on hand. Produced by Pfizer, Paxlovid was first approved for use last December. Fidelity Investments says it plans to make it possible for millions of customers to invest some of their retirement savings in Bitcoin. More from NPR's David Gura. Fidelity, which oversees almost $2.5 trillion in 401k assets, says it's responding to demand. The firm estimates roughly 80 million Americans own or have owned digital currencies. Fidelity plans to make the option available in a few months, and companies will be able to decide whether to make the option available to their employees. Bitcoin's volatility continues to be a concern. Bitcoin is trading down more than 40% from its all-time high last November. The Labor Department responded by reiterating in a statement its previous warning to employers to exercise extreme care before adding cryptocurrencies to 401k plans. David Gura, NPR News, New York. The Dow dropped 809 points today. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is making her pitch to spend $106 million in city funds and federal relief dollars to support first-time home ownership. She spoke today in Dorchester to urge support for the budget proposal she unveiled earlier this month. It's part of what city officials say is the largest amount ever budgeted toward housing affordability in Boston. WBUR's Vanessa Ochavillo has more. The mayor's plan sets out to create more homes faster, and it would expand programs that help people secure down payments and discounted interest rates. The mayor says these steps will lay the foundation for the city to spend $380 million on housing over three years. Even after this particular batch of funds has been spent, that the next bit of funds will have even greater impact because we have transformed and built the infrastructure for these processes to move faster, to reach more people. The city council will hold public hearings on the proposal in the coming weeks before a vote this summer. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Vanessa Ochavillo. The new cashless concessions policy at Fenway is in compliance with state law. That's according to the Attorney General's office to date. The AG looked into the change after Fenway announced it would offer kiosks for people to load cash onto debit cards for purchase in the park. State law mandates that businesses cannot refuse cash payments. Both Gillette Stadium and the TD Garden already had cashless systems in place. There's fresh controversy involving union nurses at St. Vincent Hospital in Worcester and its Texas-based operator. The Massachusetts Nurses Association says it has filed an unfair labor charge over at Tenant Healthcare's move to extend nurse schedules from 8 hours to 12 hours. The union calls the move an illegal violation of an agreement struck last year to end a months-long nurses' strike. St. Vincent Hospital has not responded to a WBUR request for comment. Sports, the Red Sox take on the Blue Jays again tonight in Toronto. Bruins host the Panthers over at the Garden. Showers tonight, lows around 48 degrees. We'll have a slight chance of showers early tomorrow morning, then partly sunny, the highs around 60. WBUR supporters include Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. 
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Rob Schmitz. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. We begin this hour with the latest diplomatic effort to end the conflict in Ukraine. The head of the United Nations was in Moscow today, meeting Russian President Vladimir Putin and his foreign minister, the UN chief's mission to try to bridge differences with Russia. Well, NPR's Charles Maines is there in Russia, in Moscow. Hey, Charles. Hey there. This is interesting, this this visit, because as we know, there have not been a lot of diplomatic breakthroughs on Ukraine to celebrate of late. What exactly was the Secretary General hoping to achieve? Yeah, well, the Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, said it was simple. He'd come to Moscow as, quote, a messenger of peace. Let's listen in. My objective and my agenda is strictly linked to save lives and to reduce suffering. Now, Guterres seemed to have no illusions going in. He noted that the UN and his Russian hosts had very different views about what was happening in Ukraine, and he admitted his own previous calls for ceasefire had gone nowhere, so his focus again was on easing the suffering. He said this conflict was creating shockwaves not only in Ukraine and Russia, but throughout the world, causing rising food and energy prices. And he said the sooner this conflict ends, the better it will be for everybody. Yeah, on, on that focus that he's proclaiming there of, of reducing suffering, saving lives, was there any progress on humanitarian corridors in Ukraine, you know, trying to get civilians out of cities under siege and then the, the, they're not allowed to leave safely or they're safe only for a few hours? Any movement? Well, yeah, in a way. That's really his one big proposal. He said he wanted to allow the UN to take the lead in working with both sides to establish humanitarian corridors for civilians fleeing the fighting. Uh, it was a way, Guterres argued, to build trust that these offers were truly safe and not some you know, propaganda tool for either Russia or Ukraine. You know, he also singled out the humanitarian crisis in the city of Mariupol, where Ukrainian soldiers and civilians had been trapped in a Soviet-era steelworks factory by Russian forces, calling it a crisis within a crisis that demanded action. But, you know, Guterres also got into a remarkable back and forth at the televised portion of his meeting with uh, President Putin. You know, the two men were sitting in the Kremlin at the far ends of a giant white table. Uh, some people might recognize it from recent visits that Putin has had with world leaders. And Guterres told Putin that the UN viewed Russia's actions against its neighbor as, quote, an invasion. Wait, really? He used the word invasion? How did that go down? Well, not well, as you might imagine, Putin challenged him on it. So Putin said he'd closely studied legal precedents for recognizing independent countries and defense treaties in Western Europe and said, you know, why can't Russia do the same in the Donbass? You know, there, of course, Russia has recognized and now come to the military aid of uh, these self-proclaimed Donbass republics. And so he really tried to provide legal cover for Russia's actions in Ukraine to the head of the UN live on Russian TV. Um, now, he also repeated an argument that Russian officials have made often of late, and it's this, uh, that Russia wants a diplomatic solution to the conflict, but Ukraine hasn't been a reliable negotiating partner. And the reason, Moscow says, is that the West keeps giving Kiev increasingly heavy weapons and tells them to try and settle it on the battlefield. Huh, which I guess brings me back to where we began, the darth of diplomatic breakthroughs. Where, where does diplomacy go from here? Well, we'll see if Guterres uh, makes any progress with his humanitarian corridor idea, first with Putin and then with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, with whom he meets later this week. Uh, the Ukrainians, I should add, uh, weren't too happy to come in second on that list. Uh, if Guterres is successful, it may go some way towards silencing critics who say he and the UN uh, have been largely missing amid this crisis in Ukraine so far. That is NPR's Charles Maines reporting in Moscow. Thank you. Thank you.
Russia has a reputation as one of the most advanced countries in the world when it comes to spying, and that includes secretive high-tech military communications. That notion has been shattered by how Russia has handled its communications in Ukraine. For the details, we're joined by NPR national security correspondent Greg Myrie. Hey, Greg. Hi, Rob. Ukraine keeps releasing what it says are intercepted Russian communications from the battlefield. Could you give us uh, just one example? Yeah, sure. Ukraine's military put out some audio on social media a few days ago, and it said this was a Russian military official calling for Ukrainian prisoners to be killed. Let's take a listen. Let them go forever so that no one will ever see them again, including relatives. Now, we can't confirm the authenticity, and we don't know that anybody acted on this, Hmm. but Ukraine keeps releasing these communications, and collectively they do point to something that is very definitely happening, and that is Ukraine is intercepting Russian communications, releasing tapes that suggest Russian wrongdoing, while keeping secret other information that they collect that might point to Russia's battlefield plans. That's interesting. So how are the Ukrainians intercepting these calls? Well, several ways, it seems, but let's look at the most basic. The Russians brought cell phones into Ukraine when they invaded. Now, when the Ukrainians figured this out, they cut off the Russian cell numbers from the Ukrainian network. Hmm. So the Russian phone stopped working. But then the Russians seized cell phones from Ukrainian civilians. And the Ukrainian government asked civilians to report their stolen phones. And they did. So Ukraine then knew which phones to tap into. And they've apparently been doing this quite effectively. I spoke about this with cyber expert Dmitry Alperovich. The intercepted phone calls are just invaluable in getting a sense into what the Russians are thinking, the state of their morale. There was an uh, intercepted phone call where the Russian officer was saying how half of his troops have frostbite on their feet, how they don't have any stoves, hot stoves for food. They're sleeping in trenches. Wow, that's really interesting. They're sleeping in trenches. They got frostbite on their feet. You know, Ukraine's forces have been listening in on the Russians since the war started. Why can't the Russians figure out how to stop this? Yeah, this has really been one of the mysteries because Russia is very good at gathering intelligence. It has modern, secure radio systems for its military. It knows Ukraine very well. But in many ways, it seems it's just been very, very sloppy and unprepared. Inexplicably, Russia has used off-the-shelf, unencrypted radio communications that have been widely intercepted. And equally puzzling is why Russia hasn't simply bombed Ukrainian communication networks to rubble. Now, there's speculation that Russia expected a quick takeover and wanted to keep the phone system and the railways and the electric power grid in place so Russia could use it. Right. Also, Russia is certainly tapping into Ukrainian communications at some level and wants to keep doing that. But whatever the reasons, Ukraine's phone and Internet systems are functioning pretty well. And that's certainly not what was expected before the war. That's interesting. Are are the Ukrainians getting any outside help? Absolutely. They are getting significant help from the U.S., uh, information that they can use on the battlefield in real time or more or less real time. Now, Dmitry Alperovich talked about one way, which anyone can see by simply looking at flight tracking systems on social media. If you look at the flight radar right now, you see U.S. Air Force planes that are flying near Ukrainian border collecting intelligence, and I'm sure that they're collecting radio communications and other forms of intelligence that they pass on to the Ukrainians that is 
invaluable in their prosecution of this fight. Huh. So is this U.S. help new or has this happened before? Well, there's some history here, and it's it's literally dripping with irony. Now, Russia waged major cyber attacks against Ukraine in 2015. It took down the electricity. Uh, then the next year, 2016, Russia interfered with the U.S. presidential election. Now, these Russian attacks prompted the U.S. and Ukraine to work together to counter Russia in, in the cyber world. And the National Security Agency chief, Paul Nakasone, doesn't say much publicly, but he did testify to Congress about U.S. cooperation with Ukraine just last month, uh, just a couple weeks after the war started. And Russian leader Vladimir Putin probably doesn't appreciate the irony, but his cyber actions against the U.S. and Ukraine several years ago helped forge this partnership that's now being used very aggressively to undermine Putin's war in Ukraine. That's NPR's Greg Myrie. Greg, thanks. My pleasure. Harvard says it will make amends for what it calls its extensive ties to slavery from its founding in 1636 to after the Civil War. Harvard is the world's wealthiest private university, and it has now committed $100 million to redress that history. Max Larkin from member station WBUR reports. A 130-page faculty report identifies dozens of enslaved people who served Harvard's presidents, faculty, and staff. And the university's endowment, now over $40 billion, was seeded with the wealth of slaveholders. Harvard's president, Lawrence Bacow, announced the plan in a video message published this morning. The legacy of slavery continues to influence the world in the form of disparities in education, health, wealth, income, social mobility, and almost any other metric we might use to measure equality. Backhow says it's Harvard's moral obligation to work toward repair. The university's governing board has set aside $100 million in that effort. Some may be spent on new partnerships with historically black colleges, or on memorials, or on projects involving descendants of slavery. Freshman Christian Gines says Harvard feels haunted by its history to him and his black classmates. Gines says he worries that Harvard's commitment here, however large, will pale in comparison to the earnings on its big endowment, which includes investments in private prisons and foreign real estate. There are still black and brown people locked up today. They invest in a lot of black and indigenous land in America and throughout the world, whether that be in like Brazil, in Africa and in other places. And so there are structural things, not only in the past that they've done, but in the status quo that they're continuing to do, that they could easily like disinvest and reinvest that in other places. The university has formed a committee that will make concrete decisions on the use of the funds. For NPR News, I'm Max Larkin in Boston. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown, 53 degrees in Boston at 518. Ahead on All Things Considered, liberal activists are hoping to use part of the 14th Amendment of the Constitution to keep Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene off the ballot in Georgia. That's just ahead here on WBUR. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston University Center for Anti-Racist Research, inviting you to attend the third annual National Anti-Racist Book Festival, Saturday, April 30th. Hear from Angela Y. Davis, Nicole Hannah-Jones, Sonny Hostin, Britt Bennett, Ibram X. Kendi, and more in this virtual event. Tickets and more information at antiracistbookfest.bu.edu. In business news, Waltham-based defense giant Raytheon is lowering sales expectations because of the global sanctions on Russia for the invasion of Ukraine. Raytheon dropped its annual sales outlook today by $750 million. Russia accounts for about 1.5% of Raytheon's total sales, including jet engines. CEO Greg Hayes remains optimistic about the company's prospects, saying that recovery is in sight for commercial aviation and defense spending looks promising. Wall Street today stocks down sharply, the Dow down about 2.4% to 33,240. NASDAQ down almost 4%, 12,491. S&P 500 down 2.8% at 4,175. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Mindscape, featuring new works by choreographers William Forsyth and Yorma Ello, live May 5th to 15th, bostonballet.org. And Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. The forecast showers tonight, lows around 48 degrees, slight chance of showers early tomorrow, then partly sunny, the highs will be near 60 degrees. Right now it's 53 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Wealth Management, working to help create a comprehensive plan for a client's full financial picture. More at fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from Indeed, a hiring platform committed to helping businesses of all sizes. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct interviews all in one place. More at indeed.com slash NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Rob Schmitz. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. A group of voters and liberal activists in Georgia are using a Civil War era measure to try to keep Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene off the ballot. That provision, part of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, is designed to block anyone who has, quote, engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the United States, block them from office. It's been a century since the provision has been used, but the activists argue that Congresswoman Green's comments and actions surrounding the January 6th the Capitol riot should disqualify her. Well, joining us for some 14th Amendment nitty-gritty, NPR senior editor and correspondent Ron Elving. Hey, Ron. Good to be with you, Mary Louise. So the 14th Amendment, people may not be as familiar with the full text as they are with some other amendments. Uh, it was a huge post-Civil War change to the Constitution. Just remind us what all is in it. There's a great deal in it. It was passed by Congress the year the Civil War ended and ratified by the states in two years later, 1868. It's one of the longest of all the constitutional amendments, but its most important sections conferred full citizenship and attendant rights to the formerly enslaved. Uh, That completed the work of the Emancipation Proclamation and, if you will, the the war itself. Hmm. But it also included other sections meant to punish people who had participated in the war on the side of the Confederacy. 
Of course, official Washington regarded that as a rebellion or an insurrection. And one of those, Section 3, is what's called the disqualification clause. All right, which is the one uh, that we are that we are here to discuss. What was it meant to do? Who was it meant to exclude? It was um, meant to get rid of people who wanted to come back to Congress and be part of the federal structure or get back into the military or have executive positions if they had sworn an oath to the Constitution before the Civil War and then cleared out and engaged in the rebellion or offered aid and comfort to those who did. Uh, mostly, they're talking here about people who left office to actually participate on the southern side, uh, usually as military officers, as many members of Congress did, or officials of the Confederate government. Mm -hmm. But as the Reconstruction period ended a few years later, Congress passed the Amnesty Act of 1872. Uh, the original impetus for all of this faded, and since then it's become something of a relic as we have not had another insurrection or rebellion on the scale of the Civil War. And we said it has been a century since it's been used. When was the last time? In 1919, it was used to exclude a member of Congress from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. His name was Victor Berger, and he had been elected as a Socialist Party candidate before the war. He was also born in Austria, and he was accused of spying for the enemy during World War I. So... Uh, because he had previously taken an oath of office, uh, swearing allegiance to the Constitution, the disqualification clause was invoked to exclude him after the war. Uh, Milwaukee kept voting for him, though, and <laughs> after the Supreme Court threw out the espionage charge, the Congress gave in and let him come back and serve, and he served three terms in the 1920s. Huh. Well, so how viable is it as a tactic to, to be used today to keep current members out of Congress or bar potential members? A federal judge in Georgia, as you mentioned, has allowed it as a basis for a lawsuit that would bar Congresswoman Green from the ballot in that state based on her role in the events of January 6th. But it's been a different story for similar lawsuits against members in North Carolina and Arizona. Now, all these rulings are on appeal. But in the meantime, uh, the committee investigating January 6th has heard testimony and seen emails suggesting that nearly a dozen members of the House may have been involved in one way or another planning resistance to the official proceedings on January 6th. Well, and just real quick, it makes me wonder if the activists who want to use it to kick uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene off the ballot might also have their sights on former President Trump. The activists bringing these suits have said they intend to also go after former President Trump, uh, but that may be yet another legal long shot. Uh, the language refers to executive officers, but does not specifically say the president. Huh. And PR's Ron Elving, thanks for the history lesson. Thank you, Mary Louise. NASA and SpaceX are set to send the next round of astronauts to the International Space Station tomorrow from the Kennedy Space Center. One member of the mission is NASA astronaut Jessica Watkins, who will become the first black woman on a long-duration space mission. WMFE's Brendan Byrne reports she's only the fifth black woman to travel the space, a fact NASA wants to change. Jessica Watkins is humble about her soon-to-be record-breaking flight. The 33-year-old geologist from Colorado joined the astronaut corps in 2017. She's part of NASA's Crew-4 mission, a six-month journey to the space station. I think it really is just a tribute to the legacy of the black women astronauts that have come before me, as well as to the exciting future ahead. That legacy took a long time to develop. Early on, astronauts were far from diverse, says NASA Administrator Bill Nelson. In the old days, when we first started flying in space, they were all military test pilots. 
They were usually white males of only a certain height. The astronauts that flew in the 1960s during NASA's Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo missions that landed on the moon were all white men. When the space shuttle program was developed in the 1970s, women and people of color were encouraged to apply to the astronaut corps. But it would take decades to see the first black woman launch to space. Two, one, solid rocket ignition, and liftoff, liftoff of Endeavour on America's 50th space shuttle flight. NASA's Mae Jameson launched on the shuttle Endeavour in 1992. After that, just two more black women would fly on shuttle missions, Stephanie Wilson and Joan Higginbotham. It is frustrating. Cyan Proctor became the fourth black woman to fly to space and the first to pilot a spacecraft on a commercial mission with SpaceX. She spent three days in orbit last year, which was more than a decade after the last black woman astronaut flew to space. When you don't have people of color, women of color in particular, up there doing science, paving the way, showing that it is possible, then you're not inspiring that section of the population to dream that as a career for themselves. NASA understands the importance of representation. Its astronaut corps is now the most diverse it has ever been, but there's still work to be done. For its next lunar program, what it calls Artemis, NASA promises to land the first woman and first person of color on the moon this decade. Again, NASA Administrator Bill Nelson. We want to see that all people of all backgrounds have the opportunity to participate in the space program. For Proctor, it's a large responsibility to be that role model and inspire those who look like her to enter a field in which so few black women have been before. I kept thinking how, you know, I really want to be successful so that other women of color will follow behind me. Ahead of her flight, that responsibility is not lost on Jessica Watkins either. For me, growing up, it was important to me to have role models in roles that I aspire to be in, contributing in ways I aspire to contribute. So to the extent that I'm able to do that, I'm honored and grateful for the opportunity to return the favor. And it might not be her only chance to return that favor. NASA selected Watkins to train for those next lunar missions so she can continue her trailblazing ways and leave footprints on the moon for others to follow. For NPR News, I'm Brendan Byrne in Orlando. Come back and listen to our show tomorrow. We'll be checking on COVID vaccination rates around the globe. Just turn on your radio or ask your smart speaker, play NPR. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 53 degrees in Boston at 529. Ahead on all things considered, Pfizer and BioNTech are poised to formally ask the FDA to authorize the first booster for kids ages 5 to 11. That's ahead here on WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Davis Malm. Their employment lawyers have your work cut out for them. More at davismalm.com, D-A-V-I-S-M-A-L-M. The Boston Pops. Enjoy film nights, Broadway stars, a gospel performance, and a celebration of the musical legacy of Duke Ellington and Billy Strayhorn. BostonPops.org. And Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center. When it comes to cancer, it matters where you start and when you start. Don't wait. Visit YouHaveUs.org. 
From Nazi Germany to Mussolini's Italy, women's rights were early targets of fascist regimes. Now, some historians look at contemporary American politics and see... The state taking over that control is... It's a kind of litmus test, I would say, of where things might be evolving to. That's On Point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. The White House says Vice President Harris tested positive for the coronavirus today and that she's exhibiting no symptoms. President Biden tested negative yesterday and was not in close contact with Harris before she tested positive. White House COVID-19 response coordinator Dr. Ashish Jha says there's a very contagious variant out there. Of course, it is possible that the president, like any other American, could get COVID. The bottom line is he is vaccinated and boosted. He is very well protected. He's got very good protocols around him to protect him from getting infected. But there is no 100% anything. Harris is isolating at her home and will continue to work remotely. The federal government is phasing out the sale of incandescent light bulbs. The Department of Energy issued the rule this week that creates a new baseline for a bulb efficiency. NPR's Laura Benchoff reports the move is part of the Biden administration's push to strengthen energy efficiency standards to cut utility bills and lower carbon emissions. The new rule will gradually switch the supply of light bulbs sold in the U.S. from old-fashioned incandescents to LEDs or fluorescent ones, which use much less energy and last longer. When every bulb in the country switches over, the federal government predicts consumers will save nearly $3 billion a year on electricity. That translates to burning less fossil fuels. This process was set in motion way back in 2007 in a law signed by former President George W. Bush. It was supposed to take effect in 2020, but was held up by former President Donald Trump. The Biden administration plans to take 100 such energy efficiency measures before the end of this year. Laura Benshoff, NPR News. Wall Street significantly lower by the bell. The Dow down 809 points. The Nasdaq down 514. S&P 500 down 120. For the Nasdaq, that's down 2.3 percent. The, the Nasdaq down nearly 4 percent. The Dow down 2.3 percent. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. A sweeping new Harvard report confronts the school's deep institutional ties to slavery. The report finds Harvard's reputation grew over the course of centuries thanks to donors who enriched themselves via the slave trade. It also acknowledges enslaved people once labored on campus and past faculty worked to advance theories of racial hierarchy. The school says it will follow the report's recommendations to address the injustices by steps including dialogue with descendants of enslaved people. The flu is on the rise here in Massachusetts. That's according to data from the Department of Public Health. Dr. David Hooper is chief of the Infectious Control Unit at Mass General Hospital. He says flu cases were very low over the past two years. He says because of that, there was very little immunity built up in people for this flu season. And he points out the flu shots this year don't exactly match the strain of flu that is prevalent. Some degree of vaccine mismatch uh, and lack of prior exposure uh, and reduction in restrictions uh, of masking and distancing 
that we were doing probably could all be contributors to some extent. Hooper says as the better weather arrives and more of us are outdoors, the transmission of the flu will likely decline. He still urges anyone who has not been vaccinated to get a flu shot even this late in the season. The state is making more than a half million dollars available to equip nearly 250 emergency response vehicles in cities and towns with automated external defibrillators. The goal is to improve the response to cardiac arrests. The devices deliver an electric shock to reestablish heart rhythm. It's 534. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service, a dealer alternative, your local mechanic and tire dealer serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities, directtire.com. And the Elliott Hotel and Uni Restaurant in Boston's Back Bay. Deluxe accommodations and personalized service where guests can relax in their one and two bedroom suites. ElliottHotel.com. The forecast showers tonight, the lows around 48 degrees, a slight chance of showers early tomorrow morning, then partly sunny, the highs around 60, mostly sunny and breezy on Thursday, the highs will be around 53. Right now it is 53 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from Easy Cater, committed to solving food for today's workplaces, from sales meetings to employee lunches, online ordering from more than 80,000 restaurants, corporate food solutions at easycater.com. From NPR News, it's All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Rob Schmitz. Pfizer and BioNTech asked the Food and Drug Administration today to authorize the first COVID-19 vaccine booster shot for children aged 5 to 11. NPR's Rob Stein joins us now to talk about this. Hey, Rob. Hey, they're doing, Rob. Good. Until now, boosters have only been available for adults and kids as young as 12. So this would make these younger kids eligible for a booster for the first time. What are the companies saying about why these younger kids should get a booster? Yeah, so the companies say their research indicates two things. Number one, a third shot of their low-dose pediatric vaccine six months after the second shot appears to be very safe for kids ages 5 to 11. And second, a booster can pump up their antibodies big time, including against the Omicron variant. And so a booster should help counter any waning of protection that has occurred among these kids, just like in older kids and adults. Do other experts agree with this? Well, the first thing I should say is that all the experts say we need to see the data. So far, all we know about this is what the companies have said in a news release. That said, many say that it'll probably be a good idea to make boosters available for these kids, given the fading protection we've seen in older age groups. Here's Dr. Yvonne Multanato at Stanford University. She's helping the companies test their vaccine and advises the American Academy of Pediatrics. Over time, immunity to the vaccine wanes. And we know that that happens in children as well. So the data really right now support boosters to maintain immunity. So I would vaccinate my five to 11 year olds and boost them. But you know, Rob, others aren't so sure. They say the vaccines are still protecting kids from getting severely ill. Hmm. I talked to Dr. Paul Offit at Children's Hospital in Philadelphia about this. He advises the Food and Drug Administration. If there is clear benefit for a third dose, and to me the definition of benefit is enhanced protection against serious illness, then of course give the third dose. But absent that, I don't see a compelling reason to give a third dose now. 
So, Rob, what happens now? You know, the FDA will review the company's case and could convene a meeting of the agency's outside advisors to help make a decision. Then the CDC would weigh in. And in the past, all that's happened, you know, pretty quickly. Okay. So do we have any idea how much demand there'd be for boosters for 5 to 11-year-olds? Some parents will probably be very eager to get their kids boosters. You know, many of the yeah. same parents who rushed out to get their kids the first two shots. But, you know, Rob, that's a minority of parents. Less hmm. than a third of parents of kids ages 5 to 11 have gotten their kids the first two shots. And less than a quarter of children ages 12 to 17 have gotten boosters, even though they've been eligible for months. So, you know, given the fact that the Omicron surge has faded and kids don't typically get as sick as adults, it may be a tough sell for many parents. Hmm. While we're on the subject of kids, where do things stand with getting a vaccine for the youngest kids, those under the age of five? Well, this week, we're also expecting Moderna to seek authorization for a low-dose version of its vaccines for kids as young as six months old. Moderna says two shots of that vaccine look safe and effective at boosting antibodies high enough to protect kids. But, you know, two shots don't look that great for actually protecting kids against getting sick from Omicron. So that's raised questions about whether kids will actually need three shots. And that's what happened with Pfizer's vaccine. So Pfizer started testing a third dose. And, you know, at one point, we expected this vaccine for young kids to be available this month, but it looks now like the FDA probably won't take this up until June. That's NPR health correspondent Rob Stein. Rob, thanks. Sure thing. At the U.S. Supreme Court today, some of the conservative justices seemed unusually torn as to whether the Biden administration must continue to enforce the Trump era remain in Mexico policy. That policy requires asylum seekers, mainly from Central and South America, either to be detained in the U.S. or to remain in Mexico while they wait for months or years for hearings in the U.S. NPR's legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg reports. Sometimes the justices wallop the lawyers on one side and then turn around and deliver equally brutal blows to the other side. That's what several key conservative justices did today as they considered whether the Biden administration can revoke the Trump-era policy. The Biden administration's Elizabeth Prelogger told the justices that the immigration law has an escape hatch to deal with the fact that Congress has simply not provided enough money to detain all asylum seekers. She noted that even the Trump administration could not meet the demands of its own policy because Congress only appropriates enough money to detain 30 to 40,000 people at any given moment, and the number of people who cross the border in every year far exceeds that. Chief Justice Roberts. You're in a position where the facts have sort of overtaken the law. In that situation, what are we supposed to do? It's still our job to say what the law is. And if we say what the law is and you tell us we can't do anything about it, where do you think that leaves us? Justice Kavanaugh piled on, asking whether there was any indication when the immigration law was last written that hundreds of thousands of people would be released in the U.S. while they wait for their hearings. Prelogger agreed that Congress preferred detention over release, but it has never come close to providing enough money to pay for that policy, she said. In March of this year, there were over 220,000 border crossings, she noted, but funds for only 30,000 detention beds. And in the Trump administration, similar numbers required the same results. Justice Kavanaugh pressed further. 
So you agree that Congress has expressed a preference for detention where that's available? Yes, we do. But as Prelogger noted, since the law was enacted in 1996, no administration, Democratic or Republican, has had the resources to detain all migrants crossing the border. If Prelogger faced a skeptical court, so did Judd Stone, representing the state of Texas, and its claim that the Biden administration cannot revoke the Remain in Mexico policy. First to put him on the spot was Justice Clarence Thomas, the court's most conservative member. So you could have brought the same lawsuit against the last administration? We could have brought a related lawsuit. So has any administration ever complied with 1225 under your reading? I assume not, Your Honor. Wouldn't it be odd for Congress to leave in place a statute that would appear to be impossible to comply with? Chief Justice Roberts seemed to agree. I think it's a bit much for uh, Texas to substitute itself uh, uh, for the, the secretary and say that you may want to terminate this, but you have to keep it because it will reduce to a slight extent your violations of the law. Justice Kagan wondered how it is that a federal court can tell the executive branch how to implement its foreign and immigration policy. And that's what this does. It puts the United States essentially at the mercy of Mexico. Um, Mexico knows that, you know, if we come out your way, well, Mexico has all the leverage in the world to say, well, you want to comply with the court's order? Here are 20 things that you need to do for us. Justice Kavanaugh pointed to what he called a catch-all provision in the law that he suggested would seem to allow for release of migrants in the U.S. pending their hearings. And Justice Barrett pointed to the federal government's interest in prioritizing detention for the most dangerous migrants seeking to enter the U.S. If they're right about that, you lose, right? We'll see what the answer to that is when the court decides the case, probably in late June. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Atlanta is taking steps to memorialize the victims of convict leasing. That's forced penal labor, often under brutal conditions akin to slavery. As Molly Samuel of member station WABE reports, the city is buying a property where thousands worked and many died. Local activists have been fighting for years to protect the former site of the Chattahoochee Brick Company instead of allowing industrial development on it. Right now, there's not much there. A few scattered piles of bricks, dense woods, a cracked driveway. This place is probably one of the most horrific post-slavery sites in America. Donna Stevens has led the effort to protect the site and to teach people what happened here. The factory churned out bricks that built modern Atlanta around the turn of the 20th century. They're literally the foundation of homes, streets, and sidewalks here. The people who made those bricks, mostly black men, had been arrested and forced to work. Living in filth, eating rotting food, being beaten, people died here. It's been very personal for me. Stevens lives in a nearby neighborhood named after the owner of the Chattahoochee Brick Company. James English was one of the wealthiest men in Atlanta, a former Confederate captain and mayor of the city. Stephen says when she learned who he was and what he was involved in, she was floored. 
Religious leaders recently honored the people who had suffered at the factory with a memorial at the property. Imam Clement Al-Amin is retired from the Atlanta Masjid of Al-Islam. Darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can. And ignorance cannot drive out ignorance, only knowledge and understanding can. At the event, Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens said the bricks in his home may have come from the factory. He says now that the city is buying the land, there will be a memorial here and a park. It is time that this space with such an ugly past be turned into something beautiful. Journalist Douglas Blackman wrote a Pulitzer Prize winning book called Slavery by Another Name about convict leasing. He describes Chattahoochee Brick as nightmarish, and he says it wasn't alone. At any given time, there would have been tens of thousands, if not significantly more than that, of African-American men primarily forced into these circumstances all across the South. He says the system was part of the backlash to African-Americans gaining freedom after the Civil War, trying to vote and to live as full-fledged citizens. And he says he still sees tentacles of it today in mass incarceration. In terms of America's acceptance of the idea that it's okay for a huge population of people to be oppressed in these kinds of ways, that's absolutely a legacy of what happened in these years. The National Center for Civil and Human Rights, a history museum here, is bringing people together now to talk about what shape a memorial could take. Jill Savitt is the CEO of the center. She says it's important to have a dedicated space to honor victims of convict leasing. No community is going to move forward on racial justice, on economic justice, on a range of issues, unless we can be really clear-eyed about where we've been. Local activist Donna Stevens says she feels like this history has been overlooked, with schools essentially skipping from the Civil War to something Atlanta is more proud of, as the birthplace of Martin Luther King Jr. and home of other leaders of the civil rights movement. The history books stop with slavery and pick up with Dr. King. It's ridiculous. Now, Atlanta is beginning the work to fill in that gap. For NPR News, I'm Molly Samuel in Atlanta. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown, 53 degrees in Boston at 548. Ahead on All Things Considered, we'll hear from composer, playwright, and lyricist Michael R. Jackson. His Pulitzer Prize winning musical, A Strange Loop, is finally opening on Broadway. That's ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass Cultural Council, committed to supporting a diverse, inclusive, and an anti-racist cultural sector in the Commonwealth. Through their racial equity plan and grant-making, Mass Cultural Council is working to better serve artists and organizations. Learn about their grants and services and the power of culture at massculturalcouncil.org. And Semester Off! an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Summer semester starts June 6th. Semesteroff.com. Sports action tonight. The Red Sox will take on the Blue Jays in Toronto. Bruins host the Panthers over at the Garden. In the forecast, we'll have some showers tonight. The lows around 48 degrees. Slight chance of showers early tomorrow morning, then partly sunny. The highs will be around 60 degrees. Mostly sunny and breezy on Thursday. The highs around 53, partly sunny, and 53 degrees on Friday. Right now it is 53 degrees in Boston. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the BU Center for Anti-Racist Research, founded by Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, inviting you to the third annual National Anti-Racist Book Festival on Saturday, April 30th, to engage virtually in a full day of anti-racist dialogue that will educate, challenge, and inspire. Tickets at antiracistbookfest.bu.edu. Everyone, the airlines, travelers, people who are celebrating, people who are feeling upset about this, are all asking themselves, what is the Biden administration going to do? Are they going to fight this? Or are they just going to let this ruling be the final word on the mandate? And that's it. The transportation mask mandate is just a thing of the past. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. A musical that opens on Broadway tonight has already won the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. It's called A Strange Loop. And here's how the cast describes it in the show's opening number. This big black and queer ass American Broadway show was written by Michael R. Jackson. When I asked him to explain what this semi-autobiographical musical is about, he described it this way. So A Strange Loop is about a black gay musical theater writer who works as an usher at a Broadway show who's writing a musical about a black gay musical theater writer who works as an usher at a Broadway show who's writing a musical about a black gay musical theater writer who works as an usher at a Broadway show at infinitum. (laughs) And it's sort of cycling through his own perceptions of himself and his own self-hatred. I want to break the cycle that's so ingrained in me but change comes way too slow and I am in a hurry. There's all of A couple years ago, I spoke to Jackson for the Kentucky Author Forum's podcast series, Great Podversations. At the time, Jackson had recently gotten the good news that he'd won the Pulitzer after the show's off-Broadway run. And he'd also gotten some bad news. The show's Broadway opening was postponed indefinitely because of the pandemic. Well, two years later, that long-postponed opening night has arrived, and so we're bringing you an edited version of that conversation from 2020. I hate days like today. Hi, Pulitzer Prize winner Michael R. Jackson. Hi, how are you? <laughs> I'm good. How does it feel to have that attached to your name now, like, forever and ever and ever? I'm into it, but every <laughs> once in a while, I have, like, a moment of, I can't believe this. This show is so much about being an outsider and not being accepted by the mainstream and feeling like apart from it's got to be like a mind bleep to suddenly be embraced by like the biggest awards there are right yeah I mean it definitely wasn't on my vision board for sure (laughs) you know and especially this show in particular just because the way that it started was such a like a personal thing for me And Mm -hmm. like, I'd never expected it to go any of the places that it went when I began it. You began it like almost 20 years ago, right? Just after 9-11? Yeah, like around 2001. And it was just a personal monologue that I sort of wrote for myself as I was about to graduate from college. At that time, it was just a monologue called Why I Can't Get Work because I was about to graduate from playwriting school at NYU. And I just wasn't sure what was like in store for me. And I, so I just wrote this monologue about this young black gay man walking around New York wondering why life was so terrible. And it just sort of took on a life of its own slowly but surely after that. What was the first song you wrote? Uh, memory song. Five foot four, high school gym, sneaking a cupcake. These are my memories. 
I wrote it when I was in grad school and that song like went over well enough in my class that my teacher encouraged me to continue writing my own music. These are my memories of one lone black gay boy I knew who chose to turn his back on the I have a love of what sort of classic Broadway is and can do, but I'm also like a black queer man living in the world, creating his own stories and narratives. So part of the game for me of writing a strange loop, and this is something I only came to over time as I was making it, was that I wanted to invite everyone in. And so that means, yes, your grandparents, like I want to invite them in with melodies that sound, that could be a classic melody or a big toe-tapping Broadway show, and then with content that is very challenging. So it's always been for me this push and pull between form and content. Did people give you notes that you had to tone things down and you resisted those notes? Or did people support you all the way, like write about the grinder hookup, write about the, you know, all of the other things that like we haven't seen on Broadway before? So fortunately or unfortunately, because of the sort of the various zeitgeists of time, again, remembering that I started writing this piece in the first Bush era, no one cared <laughs> like what I was doing. Like, right. oh, uh, oh, what, how cute for you. You're a black gay musical theater writer. Who cares? Uh -huh. I was left to my own devices to make whatever I wanted to make. And so I just did that. And then I was ushering at the Lion King and Mary Poppins and Aladdin for periods of time. And I saw what like broad, big Broadway was up close. And I was like, oh, that's not really what I do. And so I just did what I wanted. So then by the time the show started to sort of emerge, the culture had shifted mm -hmm. and was a little bit more receptive to what the show was on some level. And then the person who you more than call out, like the show is in some ways <laughs> built around, is Tyler Perry, who I understand got in touch with you. He did. He did not see the show, but he heard about it. And then he listened to the cast album after we spoke. And? He didn't give me any feedback about it. We just talked. He just called me to congratulate me about the Pulitzer and to, like, tell me that he was going to beat my butt. I think it's really interesting that even before the racial justice protests around police violence and larger issues, you were talking about the way that this show represents kind of like the everyday misery of being a queer black man that is not associated with acute instances of like physical harm and danger. Correct. Right. That was also really important for me is that like I wanted to also while dealing with the everyday misery, I it was also important to me that people see a black man, a black queer man not being sacrificed to police violence and slavery. So how do you see this story fitting in with a national conversation about the legacy of slavery and police violence and all of the other like you know, towering historical and present day injustices. 
So I see it fitting in exactly as it does. It's the story that I told with the creative team that I made. And like, it's one patchwork and a quilt of many stories, Mm -hmm. but it's not the entire story. And so I don't think that even as we are grappling with these issues nationally, it's not the whole story. Mm -hmm. It's part of it. But I think that that also goes to this idea that we're always in every group that is always dealing with the individual versus the group. A Strange Loop is about an individual person trying to figure out what's wrong with him and then learning nothing's wrong with him. Yeah. And so he's, that's one story. What's the next Black Queer Man story? What's the next one? For me, it's like, it's a very complicated, it's like there's this national thing going on and then there's like individual people in their lives trying to figure it out. I am the story's writer. I'm barely scraping by. Michael R. Jackson spoke with me in 2020 for the Kentucky Author Forum's Great Podversations. Jackson's Pulitzer Prize-winning musical, A Strange Loop, opens on Broadway tonight. I claim to have a plan, but feel like nothing more than an angsty gay black man. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Lafayette Imports, bringing Plymouth Gin to the U.S. from England's southwest coast. Plymouth Gin is distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin since 1793. From Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from the Lemelson Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. Just ahead at 6 o'clock here on All Things Considered, Ukraine's prosecutor general is determined to hold Russian President Vladimir Putin accountable for what she says are war crimes. That's just ahead here on WBUR. We'll have some showers tonight, lows around 48, slight chance of showers early tomorrow morning, then partly sunny. The highs will be around 60 degrees. Right now it's 53 degrees in Boston. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. We have near 8,000 cases about actually war crimes. More than 3,000 cases which are connected to war crimes. Ukraine's prosecutor general is determined to hold Russia accountable for committing atrocities. It's Tuesday, April 26th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, how Ukrainians are gathering evidence against Russia and the toll that evidence is taking on those reviewing it. Also ahead, what Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter means for free speech. And the rusty patch bumblebee is endangered and losing some of its last habitat in Illinois Prairie. A multi-million dollar airport expansion is stalled because of last-minute sightings of the bees. Stocks fell sharply on Wall Street. Marketplace is up at 6.30 with all the business news. It's 6.01. Now these headlines.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is stressing the urgency of sending more weapons to Ukraine as Russia prepares for a new offensive. As NPR's Greg Myrie explains, Austin hosted defense officials from some 40 countries at a U.S. air base in Germany. The U.S. Defense Secretary said the nations gathered at Ramstein Air Base would meet monthly to ensure that military support keeps flowing to Ukraine. So we've got to move at the speed of war. And I know that all the leaders leave today more resolved than ever to support Ukraine. Most of the countries are European nations that are members of NATO, and many are already supporting Ukraine. In one notable shift, Germany says it's now willing to provide Ukraine with anti-aircraft systems. Germany had previously been reluctant to provide heavy weapons to Ukraine. Greg Myrie, NPR News. Pfizer and BioNTech today asked the Food and Drug Administration to authorize a COVID-19 vaccine booster shot for children ages 5 to 11. NPR's Rob Stein reports. The companies say a third shot of their low-dose pediatric COVID-19 vaccine is safe for children ages 5 to 11 and could help protect them against Omicron. At the moment, boosters have only been authorized for those ages 12 and older. The companies say a third shot for younger kids could help counter waning immunity that has left other age groups more vulnerable to Omicron. Some independent experts agree, but others remain skeptical that another shot is needed yet for younger kids, and it remains unclear how much of a demand there might be. Less than a third of parents of kids ages 5 to 11 had gotten their kids the first two shots, and less than a quarter of children ages 12 to 17 have gotten boosters. Rob Stein, NPR News. Vice President Kamala Harris has tested positive for the coronavirus. As NPR's Scott Detrow reports, Harris will isolate and stay away from the White House until she tests negative. Harris has been vaccinated against COVID-19 and received two booster shots. The White House says she has not exhibited any symptoms of COVID yet. Harris spent last week in California and returned to Washington Monday night, so she had not met with President Biden in person in recent days. Like Biden, Harris has been cautious about the virus, masking indoors and minimizing large gatherings. The White House dropped most of those precautions this spring and since then has seen several cases amid a larger uptick in Washington, D.C. Second gentleman Doug Emhoff tested positive for COVID last month. Scott Detrow, NPR News, Washington. The U.S. Preventative Services Task Force says people over the age of 60 should not start taking aspirin to prevent heart attacks or strokes. The group says there's no benefit in initiating aspirin treatment in that age group. It could cause more harm. On Wall Street, the Dow dropped 809 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker says he's ready to take the next steps for making East-West Rail a reality. The governor and Congressman Richard Neal announced today the state is looking to create an authority to oversee expanded passenger rail service from the western part of the state to Boston. Baker at times has seemed cool to the idea, but alongside Neal, the governor today defended his deliberate approach to the proposal. And I said from the beginning... My most important issue was to understand what it was we were trying to accomplish and what it would look like and how it would get framed. And over that period, and that somehow was viewed by a lot of people as opposition. Right. It wasn't. The next step will be for the state legislature to take action to create a new authority. Much of the funding is expected to come from federal infrastructure money. 
Watchdogs are reporting a dramatic increase in anti-Semitic incidents in Massachusetts over the past year. New data from the Anti-Defamation League showed the state's total number of reported incidents like assault and vandalism grew 48 percent in 2021. Robert Treston is director of ADL New England. He calls the data a warning sign as well as a likely undercount. It's important for leaders and that includes coaches and school administrators and elected officials to be taking a strong stand because we cannot allow it to metastasize. And we have perfect examples of that happening. Treston points to prominent incidents like the stabbing of a rabbi in Brighton last summer. He says we all have a responsibility to call out anti-Semitism wherever it happens. Harvard University will spend $100 million to implement the recommendations of a report detailing the school's history with slavery. Harvard officials released that report today. It breaks down the university's physical, financial, and intellectual ties to the slave trade. WBUR's Hannah Shinatri reports. The report is an exhaustive account. It finds Harvard's faculty, staff, and leaders enslaved more than 70 people in the 17th and 18th centuries. The people they enslaved are listed in the report by name. The review also finds much of the infrastructure that led to Harvard's wealth and national reputation came from donors who made their money in the slave trade. The report's recommendations include formal recognition and a memorial for the people enslaved at Harvard. It also calls for increased financial support for research into racial inequality. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Hannah Schnatry. In sports, the Red Sox will take on the Blue Jays again tonight up in Toronto. The Bruins host the Panthers over at the Garden tonight. In the forecast, we'll have some showers tonight. The lows around 48 degrees. A slight chance of some showers early tomorrow morning. Then partly sunny. The highs will be near 60. Mostly sunny and breezy on Thursday. The highs will be around 53 degrees. Partly sunny and 53 degrees on Friday. Right now it's 52 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Little Market a nonprofit dedicated to the economic empowerment of women and underserved communities, offering artisan-made goods, home decor, and gifts with a commitment to fair trade. TheLittleMarket.com This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Rob Schmitz. Another mass grave was discovered outside of Mariupol yesterday, this one just north of the city. Ukrainian officials say it's the latest example of Russia trying to hide evidence of war crimes. And Ukraine's prosecutor general is determined to hold Russian President Vladimir Putin accountable. Irina Venediktova is leading Ukraine's investigations into war crimes. NPR's Franco Ordonez recently sat down with her to discuss the cases, and he joins us now. And a warning, this story contains descriptions that may be upsetting. Hello, Franco. Hello, Rob. So what can you tell us about Venediktova? You know, she's 43. She's a former member of parliament and a former law professor. She's also the first woman to hold the job. She's been in it for two years, but the war has really totally reshaped her focus. She says she spends most of her time now in the field, working directly with her 8,000 prosecutors and meeting with victims. And now she's really attentive on trying to punish Putin and his military leaders. And she speaks about this very forcefully with this matter-of-fact tenacity of a prosecutor. Wow, 8,000 prosecutors. That, that sounds uh, pretty, uh, yeah. pretty impressive. How is she going about investigating these cases? 
You know, she has opened more than 8,100 investigations into alleged war crimes and identified hundreds of suspects. She says a lot of those cases are concentrated around Kyiv and villages like Bucha that Russians abandoned after a month of occupation. But she says it's far from complete because they haven't had access to areas like Mariupol where they've discovered mass graves holding hundreds of bodies. And she says the real number is much higher. No one knows, doubled or in three time or in five time. Nobody can say about it. It, it is a full-scale invasion to our country, very aggressive, very brutal. You know, but she says that she and her investigators have already been taking testimonials from refugees who have escaped Mariupol. And she also cited Russian airstrikes on the maternity hospital in Mariupol and other attacks on critical infrastructure. So it's still early in the investigation, but what kinds of things is she finding? You know, Rob, everyone has seen some of these horrific images, but she's poring over them and she's looking for patterns, you know, trying to decipher what was targeted, what was indiscriminate. And she acknowledges they've had an impact a bit personally. Hmm. I do everything as a prosecutor. And even now you see that I try to be not emotional. But from other side, of course, I am a Ukrainian citizen. I see everything uh, every day from morning till night that my country is blooding, actually. And she, you know, while sitting there, she asked her assistant to give her a picture of a teenage boy, which, again, I just want to note, is graphic and upsetting. And the boy, he's on a hospital table. Natalia, please show Rostislav the, the picture with Rostislav. It is boy. You just, now you just imagine what I see here. And... This is chest of the boy and the piece of projectile inside this boy, this chest. Rob, you can see a greenish gold shell lodged inside his chest. You know, that boy's name was Roslov. He was just 14. You know, Venediktova asked me, she said, how was she supposed to feel after seeing something like this? You know, was she supposed to forgive? And she said, just no. Uh, that is an awful image, uh, and as awful as it is, still these kinds of cases have historically been very hard to win, right? Yeah, I mean, building a case that goes all the way to the top to hold Putin and other top leaders accountable will be tough. As one of her advisors told me, modern leaders just do not write down orders to kill and rape innocent people. Right. But it doesn't mean that they're not responsible. Now, that advisor told me it's still very worthwhile just to document these crimes for history, even if Putin isn't actually locked up. But Venediktova, she said that's not enough. And she said that she won't quit until Putin and his military leaders are convicted. That's NPR correspondent Franco Ordonez. Franco, thank you. Thanks, Rob. To other news, the world's richest man is purchasing Twitter for about 44 billion bucks. In a tweet where else Elon Musk said, quote, I hope that even my worst critics remain on Twitter because that is what free speech means. Those critics point out that Twitter can be rife with disinformation and racism and harassment, and they question whether Elon Musk is the right person to address those problems. Among those questioning, Anand Girdardas. He's author of the book Winners Take All, the elite charade of changing the world, and wrote about the acquisition for the New York Times opinion section. Anand, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. All right. So when Elon Musk says he wants to promote free speech on the platform, that seems like a good idea in principle. Why does it raise a red flag for you? Free speech is a great 
concept, and I'm a I'm a big supporter, as I know you are. You work in the business of it, uh, as do I. But free speech has become a dog whistle in American life in recent years, and Elon Musk means it in a much more specific way, and he's been much more specific about it. And what he's talking about is the feeling uh, that what is frankly content moderation on sites like Twitter uh, and other social media platforms mm -hmm. is suppressing free speech. In other words, efforts that have been made to clamp down on very real problems that you and I see on Twitter every day, which is Nazi speech going unchecked, uh, racism going unchecked, disinformation going unchecked, misogyny, rape threats to, to women who've made the mistake of having opinions going unchecked. There have been modest, inadequate, but modest efforts in recent years to clamp down. And Elon Musk thinks that kind of reform, which actually allows more people to speak more freely and safely, is the problem. Um, you actually take this a little bit farther in your piece for the Times. I want to quote one line. You ask, what happens when the incarnation of a problem buys the right to decide what the problem is and how to fix it? I mean, you're just to, to take one example, the, the bullying and harassment problem on Twitter. Why is Musk the wrong person to fix that? It's not only the wrong person, it is the perfect embodiment of the problem, right? So, so I, I kind of focus on three in the piece. And when I talk to people who work at Twitter, these are the three they're thinking about, right? So Twitter has a disinformation problem by its own acknowledgement, right? And Elon Musk has shown himself to be someone who spreads falsehood. Um, Twitter has a racism problem, which again, Twitter has fessed up to it, has tried to fix and not done enough, but but owned up to the fact that it is working to make it a less bigoted, uh, harassing place for people of color. Elon Musk runs a company that the California Department of Fair Housing and Employment uh, recently said is a segregated workplace. Not awkward, not mean, segregated. And, and Twitter has a bullying and harassment problem, as particularly women and people of color experience every day. And Elon Musk is the incarnation of that kind of social media behavior, sicking his followers on people who disagree with him, yeah, living in a kind of perpetual Bill Gates, For example, belittling Correct. Bill Gates. Just, I mean, setting aside for the moment, uh, you know, the question of Elon Musk and whether he's the right man for the job, are you assigning too much power to Twitter? I mean, most Americans aren't even on Twitter. How does this affect them? Uh, Twitter is incredibly powerful in certain ways. It's not powerful in the way that network television was in the 70s with you know 40 million people watching the same thing. Uh, but it is, I think Elon Musk is correct when he calls it the closest we have to some kind of global town square. And now one rich guy has bought the thing he described as the town square. A town square is necessarily a kind of public thing. And so the problem is he is going to have a disproportionate power to shape discourse, shape uh, journalism, shape how people think about public problems. And a man who embodies many of our biggest public problems is going to have the chance to shape the solution to Very those problems. Just and a couple seconds. Sorry, just a couple seconds left. So a yes or no question. Are you going to stay on Twitter? I will stay on Twitter, and I hope Elon Musk does not. We will leave it there. Anand Girdardas, author of the book Winners Take All. It was a pleasure. Thanks for talking with us. Thanks for having me. On Earth Day last week, a man lit himself on fire outside the U.S. Supreme Court. The Colorado climate activist died of his injuries the next day. Colorado Public Radio's Sam Brash reports he may have meant to bring attention to climate change, but his intentions remain unclear. 
After the incident last Friday evening in Washington, focus turned to Wynn Allen Bruce's Facebook profile. The professional photographer left behind many black and white self-portraits. They show him as slender with rounded glasses, his eyes set on the camera. His post focused on two main topics, his Buddhist faith and climate change. There's a haunting edit to one comment about irreversible global warming. It includes a fire emoji and the date of Bruce's death, written by him earlier this month. A case pending before the Supreme Court could eliminate the Environmental Protection Agency's authority to restrict climate warming emissions. His father, Douglas Bruce, says he doesn't know if that's why his son took his own life. What he could confirm was his son's passion for the natural world. His commitment and concern about the environment and climate issues, for example, is really very heartfelt and central to who he is. Members of Boulder, Colorado's Buddhist community have given contradictory statements about Bruce's motivation. Kriti Kanko is a climate scientist and Zen priest who says she practiced with Bruce. She tweeted that Bruce planned the act for at least a year to bring attention to the climate crisis. Later, she signed a public statement with other Buddhist leaders, saying no one was aware of his plans beforehand. Other friends had no clarity, just heartache. What he did, I don't know. Why he did it, how he did Boulder sculptor Brian Grossman says he met Bruce more than a decade ago while grocery shopping. Grossman has multiple sclerosis and uses an electric tricycle. He says Bruce, who worked at the store, would help him unload it from his car. They became friends and would meet every once in a while for tea, often talking about government indifference to people and the planet. And while he respected Bruce's passion for politics, he also hopes he's remembered as just a really good guy. He always wanted to shake my hand and say, doing a great job, you know? And Grossman says he'd always have the same reply. You are too. For NPR News, I'm Sam Brash in Denver. If you or someone you know may be considering suicide, contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Ahead on All Things Considered, President Biden's approval ratings among Gen Z and millennial voters have been slipping. We'll examine what that might mean come November. In business news, Boston-based General Electric is reporting it lost more than $1 billion in the first three months of the year. That's a loss of 99 cents per share. The industrial giant CEO says the company is facing new supply chain challenges and rising costs for raw materials. Shares in GE fell 10 percent in trading today. Wall Street stocks were down sharply. The Dow down about 2.4 percent at 33,240. NASDAQ down almost 4 percent at 12,491. And the S&P 500 down 2.8 percent at 4,175. Marketplace will have the business news coming up at 630. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning coaching, and yoga. SemesterOff.com. And the Umbrella Arts Center. Over 50 artists share their work and process at the Open Studios and Group Art Exhibition this Friday and Saturday. TheUmbrellaArts.org. 
In sports, the Red Sox will be taking on the Blue Jays again tonight up in Toronto. Bruins host the Panthers over at the Garden tonight, and the Celtics are waiting to find out who they'll play in their second-round NBA playoff series. In the forecast, showers tonight. The lows will be around 48 degrees. A slight chance of showers early tomorrow morning, then partly sunny. The highs will be near 60. Mostly sunny and breezy on Thursday. The highs will be around 53. Partly sunny and 53 degrees on Friday. Right now, it is 52 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 W. WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Rob Schmitz. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. As the political calendar inches towards midterm elections coming right up in November, President Biden's approval ratings are down overall. Democratic pollsters are really sounding the alarm about his approval ratings among young voters. A recent Gallup poll noted support for the president had plummeted 21 points among Gen Z, that is people born after 1997, and the slump in approval extends through millennials and into Gen X. So what gives? Well, to make sense of this, we are joined by Christina Sinsun Ramirez. She's president and executive director of Next Gen America. That's one of the biggest youth vote mobilizing organizations in the country. I asked her, what's driving this? What we're seeing from the polling and talking to millions of young people across the country is that young people are very clear that they are inheriting a climate crisis, a democracy in decline, and deep and grotesque income inequality. And, you know, a lot of people don't realize, but young Americans, young adult Americans, are the first generation in American history to be worse off than their parents. Hmm. Do you see differences among the generations? Gen Z turnoffs, is they the same as millennials or as Gen X? I don't know. I'm Gen X. I don't know if we count as young anymore, but at the upper end of what you're watching? Uh, I'm a millennial, and you know when you combine millennials and Gen Z, they are the largest voting bloc in American history, 65 million young people that are eligible to vote in that younger demographic. And they are consistently progressive, but a lot of them see themselves as independents. They care mostly about issues. And while a lot of young people went and voted to defeat Trump, a lot of them also wanted to see real structural change on the economy. And there is one thing that is really critical in the back pocket of the Biden administration that would greatly help Democrats, which is canceling student debt. Um, And it's something that the Biden administration really needs to consider to improve the lives and show that they understand the economic pain of a generation that feels like they don't know when they can have kids. They don't know when they can buy a house. They don't have a lot of security in their economic future. Which is so interesting because, you know, the Biden administration would argue that that a lot of things are going right with the economy, that it is better than it was two years ago. Unemployment is way down, for example. Ordinary Americans don't judge how the economy is doing just by the GDP or how well big corporations are doing. They judge it by how well they're able to make ends meet, how it impacts their pocketbook, how much housing costs, how much they're earning. Truth be told, Biden doesn't control everything that happens in the economy by any means. No president does. Um, But when we talk about the issues that especially young people care about, you see they want big structural change on the economy. They want uh, a a minimum of a $15 minimum wage in this country. Uh, They want to hold big corporations accountable. They are suspicious of how much inequality has grown in this country. Well, so is the Democratic Party going to put the the time and and energy into this? I mean, in your view, does the White House have a plan to turn things around before the November elections? 
you know, I'm starting to see people have the right conversations. But for me, it's not just about the conversation about the youth vote. It's about ultimately budget priorities and how they spend money speaking and reaching to millions of young people. Um, you know, we have 25,000 volunteers across the country that helped us text, call, organize on dating apps and Twitch and all kinds of ways digitally that I'm, since I'm a grandma millennial, is too old even for me to <laughs> fully understand. But we were able to reach millions of young voters that way. And it's really critical that all of those strategies be employed for 22. Christina Sinsoon Ramirez, grandma millennial and president and executive director of Next Gen America. Thanks for talking with us. Thanks. I'll start using that in my title. Take care. In northern Illinois, a multi-million dollar airport expansion on a rare patch of prairie threatens an endangered bumblebee. And environmentalists say the Endangered Species Act is not helping to protect it. Juan Pablo Ramirez Franco reports. Mary Griswold was recently at a makeshift party outside of the Chicago Rockford International Airport. The group celebrated the emergence of the rusty patched bumblebee, a federally endangered species since 2017. The queen is supposed to come out of hibernation around this time. So that's one of the things that got us motivated to come out today. This celebration was the latest in a series of events organized by a grassroots campaign trying to save a rare remnant prairie, which is also the site of a proposed $50 million expansion at the Rockford Airport. The bee was found on the prairie last fall, and that was enough to temporarily halt construction. It also triggered an Endangered Species Act consultation with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Rob Telfer is with the Friends of Illinois Nature Preserves. He says saving the bumblebee is linked to saving its habitat. The problem is the Endangered Species Act does not protect remnant prairies. In 2020, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service decided against designating critical habitat for the rusty patched bumblebee. That additional protection would require federal agencies to determine that a project using federal dollars would impact threatened or endangered species or their critical habitat. The service concluded that habitat destruction is not the bee's main threat calling the bee a habitat generalist. That decision ushered in a legal challenge by the Natural Resources Defense Council. The group's Lucas Rhodes argues that habitat remains key. The tool is there. It's in the Endangered Species Act, but the Fish and Wildlife Service is just not using that tool in this particular circumstance to protect the bee's habitat, and that's the problem. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service would not comment for this story citing the lawsuit. Neither would airport officials, though they did confirm that the consultation is now in its final phase and the service has 135 days to deliver a final decision. The rusty patch bumblebee was once common throughout much of the Midwest and Northeast United States into Canada. It's now disappeared from nearly 90% of its native range. Margarita Lopez Uribe teaches entomology at Penn State and has been studying bees for more than two decades. She says habitat loss is a major driver of the bee's demise. So a lot of areas that used to have very diverse floral resources have now been converted to agriculture or, you know, through urbanization. And basically, there is not a lot of food available. Lopez Uribe adds that on top of habitat loss, pesticides and the unknown effects of climate change further complicate life for this bumblebee. The airport has installed a chain link fence and added a large no trespassing sign to deter people from getting on the land while it's in legal limbo. Conservationist Rob Telfer says he's fine letting the legal process play out, but says the prairie and the bee are worth fighting for. We're out here for a, a few acres because that's all that's left because we've been giving these tiny little pieces to different projects for, you know, 
hundreds of years and we're running out of space. In the meantime, environmentalists and the airport officials are waiting to see if summer on the remnant prairie here will be filled with the sound of bumblebees or bulldozers. For NPR News, I'm Juan Pablo Ramirez Franco in Rockford. Support for All Tech Considered comes from C3AI. C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI. And from Zoom, used by half a million businesses, a platform for phone, chat, workspaces, events, apps, and video, enabling real-time collaboration for teams around the globe. Zoom, how the world connects. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. 52 degrees in Boston at 629. Stocks are way off today. Coming up next, it's Marketplace. They may be able to explain why. In the forecast, showers tonight. The lows will be around 48 degrees. A slight chance of showers early tomorrow morning, then partly sunny. The highs will be around 60 degrees. Mostly sunny and breezy on Thursday. The highs will be around 53. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Liz Linder Photography, creating portraits and stories for life and work. Pictures talk at lizlinder.com. And Loomis Sales, investing for people's education and retirements for 95 years. And proud sponsor of the Summer Search Program, providing year-round mentoring, life-changing experiences, college advising, and lasting support for resilient low-income high school students, inspiring them to become responsible, altruistic leaders.